Our new partner who I'm really, really excited to announce we are working with. Super, super stoked. Thank you, Angie Huberman, for this connect. It's incredible. Uh, AG1 Athletic Greens. I've been using them for a while. I have them every morning on an empty stomach. Basically, take one scoop and you put it into a uh, cup or glass or mug of eight ounces of cold water. And this is all your greens for the day. You're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Every day I take this. It's so good for my digestion, my energy. It's simple. It's easy. I don't like taking a lot of vitamins. This has been really, really helpful for me. I've had a lot of stomach issues my whole life, and ever since I've been gluten-free and taking the AG1s, it's really helped me in my stomach in the mornings. I love it, and I'm so psyched that they're part of the One Life One Chance podcast. I'm sure a lot of people don't like eating greens, let alone drinking your greens, but I can tell you straight up, it's got a mild tropical taste, and the taste is actually really refreshing, and I really look forward to it each morning. Don't, don't think it's just going to be just straight bland. Um, it tastes really, really good, um, and it's good for you, so remember that. This one blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's incredible. Just one scoop, especially for musicians who are vegans or just musicians in general who want to get those daily greens. You can get the packets. It's incredible. I just gave some to my friend Derek from Sepultura. He traveled the whole entire world this summer, and he had, he had those every single day. He said it saved him. I bring AG1s with me when I travel. It helps me stay healthy. You know the deal. If you're on tour and you are uh, a picky eater, but you need to have your greens, sometimes catering doesn't have greens. Sometimes you miss the catering. Sometimes you miss the backstage food. Sometimes it's too late after the show to go get food that you like. So if you just have a, a scoop of uh, AG1s in your hotel room before you go to bed or you're in the hotel room at night and you're starving and you want something healthy, boom, life changer. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with some convenient daily nutrition. That's all you need. One scoop in a cup every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. This is it. I'm super psyched. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit drinkag1.com slash OLLC. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This is incredible. I love it. It's just basic greens. For me personally, this has changed my life tremendously. I'm not a junk food vegan. I don't eat a lot of fake meat, so I'm strictly, strictly greens. And this has been a wonderful, wonderful new addition to my life. So once again, visit drinkag1.com slash OLLC. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Get one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's drinkag1.com slash OLLC. Yo, yo, Liquid Death, thank you so much for hydrating all my guests, taking care of me and my family and my friends. Love your water, love your brand, love what you stand for, love what you give back to the community. If you want to learn more about Liquid Death and how it started, listen to episode 115 with the co-founder, owner, and creator of Liquid Death, Mike Cesario. Just a punk rock skateboarding kid from Delaware with a dream. It's an incredible story, incredible journey. So if you go liquiddeath.com slash Toby, you get free shipping on any items you order from liquiddeath.com. And if you want to get water, Liquid Death water, go to amazon.com. But for merchandise and other things that's not water, go to liquiddeath.com slash Toby and get free shipping. Thank you so much, Liquid Death. Death to plastic, murder your thirst, stay hydrated. You know H2O saves lives. <clears throat> Welcome to the One Life, One Chance podcast. I'm your host, Toby Morris. 
Today, I have a very special guest in my house, Mr. Norman Brandon. Thank you for being here, man. Thank you. We made it. You fucking made it. We were talking about this for a while, um, and I'm glad to have you in my kitchen. <laughs> I was trying to figure out when we met, what year could have been, or where, or how, or somewhere in the world of music and the scene, I guess, right? Yeah, honestly, I don't remember either. I, I feel like um, I was thinking about how, like, I, I was talking to Tim Bohr, um, yes. who books Thursday, and, and he was saying how, he asked me how old I was, and he goes, it just feels like you've always been around. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and I was like, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I came in pretty young. Yeah. Did you? Were you born in New York? Yeah, I grew up in Queens. Nice. What part of Queens? I grew up in Woodside. I know Woodside. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, so like in like right before high school, my my family moved to Long Island, and I moved there for maybe two and a half years before I dropped out of school and was like, I can't live here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Long Island. Yeah. I mean, what part of Long Island? Was I know it? Long Island is so like different. a big thing now, like hardcore, you know, they have so much pride, but yeah, at the time, you know, <laughs> it was like 1988, 89, I think it was. And, uh, I mean, especially where my parents moved, they moved to a town called Massapequa. Yeah. I know that. Which, yeah, yeah. and so like at that time, um, it was Mass Peak was very affluent and and that's one of the reasons why they moved there actually because we were not affluent and they were looking to send us to better schools and someone who worked with my dad told him like you know schools out there the public schools are better than the private schools in the city so they were like you know we'll find a cheap rental and you'll go to these fucking sick schools <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough like I, you know, my first day of school, literally someone calls me N-word. I was the, f <laughs> I was the first non-white person to walk into that high school ever. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. And I punched him in the face. You did? <laughs> I got suspended my first day. And, uh, wow. and then, and that sort of set the tone. I was sort of like, I fucking hate this place. You know? <laughs> what grade was that? Probably eighth grade. Something Holy like that. shit! Yeah. And at that point, I was already like, I'd already started going to shows, and and so like, I kind of got like, I also on top of not being white, I think I was also a skinhead. So people were like, "Wow, what is this dude's deal?" Like, <laughs> you know, like walking with oxblood docks and like, wow, you know, they didn't understand it because at that point. I don't even know that Geraldo had aired yet. Ooh. Like, I think that was still. Game changer. Yeah. So they they still were sort of like trying to suss me out. Wow, man. Do you have siblings? I have two older brothers. Yeah. Were they into the same stuff? Um, My one older brother, the middle one, <clears throat> he actually, I would say like he inadvertently got me into punk. He got into punk for like literally 15 minutes. <laughs> like he saw Sham 69 at CB's or something Damn. one night. And he had met some dudes that that took him there, but then like really quickly he was just like, "Oh, I'm not interested," because he was a guitar player and he was more into like shredding. Okay. And punk's not shredding, yeah. so <laughs> at least not at that time. Yeah. So he, but the friends that he made during that 15 minute period would still come around every now and then, and they had mixtapes that they would always have. Mm. And I started like I remember one guy specifically would lend me tapes and I would make tapes of his tapes. And like, that was sort of the first things I heard. I mean, I remember the tapes had discharge and, uh, 
that was the first time I heard misfits and like stiff yeah. little fingers and all that stuff. So that was like, that was like, I'd say like when I really started digging in. Yeah. What were we listening to before that? Um, I mean, so I've always been very Catholic in my tastes. Like I've always like, even back then I'd say like the three things that I was listening to in the mid eighties were like new wave. Yep metal and uh hip-hop okay and so like those were you know i don't think i had any more or less of an allegiance to any of them at that at that time mm-hmm. at that time punk was sort of like you know different from those things in the sense that like there was this attached community yes and when we lived in woodside so i lived across the street from this park windmuller park and uh and so there was this area of the park that my family, for whatever reason, we always called the back of the park. And my, my parents were always like, don't go to the back of the park. <laughs> <laughs> the back of the park is where like they had all the little chess tables. Oh, yeah. But nobody played chess. It was just where hoodlums hung out. Mm. And um, the hoodlums that lived in Woodside was this punk gang called ZOW, Zombies of Woodside. Wow. And Zombies of Woodside at that time, they were sort of like... I mean, we knew who they were because they were punk and they looked different than everybody else. Yeah. They also, you know, they, they graffitied all the places up. And it was funny because like their logo, they would have, they would put sw- like swastikas in the O and, but they weren't even like, they weren't even all white. They wasn't, they weren't Nazi it was at all. It was just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like shock value shit. But there was one guy in particular that I remember meeting when I was like very little and he always like, you know, he used to call me little man and like he was very just affectionate with me for some reason. I think yeah. he just I think he saw something about me in him. Yeah. And so we just sort of like became like not friends, but like we were sort of, you know, he would always ask me how I was doing. Like I'd see him around the park or whatever. And uh, and so my, I had this like affection for punk people even before I really knew mm-hmm. what punk was. Like, yeah. And so when I finally heard the music, I was sort of like, okay, I get this. Yeah. Were you a skater too? No, I have no coordination. <laughs> no. I, I don't know how I play guitar. <laughs> so you didn't do sports in school or nothing? Never. Damn. Never. I mean, like skating. Here's the thing about skating too. Like to be, to really skate, you kind of have to have like no fear. Yeah. And I don't have that. Like every time I get on that board, I'm like, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in, how are you in school? I was, um, I mean, up until we moved, I was actually like a straight A. Wow. Like I was very much, um, I was an overachiever, but I sort of credit this to, uh, what in the gay community we call best little boy in the world syndrome. Okay. (laughs) And, And this comes from a book that was written originally. It was like an anonymous book. Mm. called the best little boy in the world later it it came out the guy who wrote it came out as this guy andrew tobias who i think became like the treasurer of the u.s treasurer under clinton at one point like wow but in the 80s he wrote this book and it was kind of talking about how he used overachieving to sort of deflect so you know when people would be like well why aren't you dating anyone Oh, I'm just so busy. Oh, yeah, schoolwork. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Homework, yeah. Wow. Things like that. And and so and also like you feel like shit about yourself all the time when you're in the closet 
So being the best little boy in the world gives you some validation, makes you feel valuable, gives you some worthiness. Mm. And I definitely think that I was carrying that cross very early in life. Yeah. So how old were you when you realized? Honestly, I think I knew when I was like five. Wow. I'm pretty sure. Like I was, there was never a doubt in my mind. It wasn't, and, and, but that would give you like some insight as to how long I'd been tortured about it because yeah. I grew up in a Pentecostal family. Like we, not just a Pentecostal family, a Latin Pentecostal family, which is like fucking real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, I, yeah, I mean, like I pretty much knew about gay people for as long as I could remember. I knew they were evil. They were sinners. They were fucking per- perverts. They wow. were child molesters. These were all the things that I had been told for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And I just, but I remember like I knew and, and even like I talk about this now and I'd really like to sort of get some sort of confirmation about this. I've tried to do some research, but when I was in second grade, <clears throat> I had a teacher, Mr. Warnkin. And all I remember about that about meeting him and talking to him and sort of like being his student was that like, I fucking, I feel like we're part of the same tribe. Like it was that kind of feeling. I felt this deep, deep connection to him where I just really was just like, whatever he is, I I am. Mm -hmm. If I show you a picture of Mr. Warnkin today and say, you know, this picture was from 1982 or whenever I was in his class, you'd be like, dude, this looks like a fire Island picture. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the mustache, the, yeah. like, you know, the, you know, I mean, he was gay mm-hmm. and I've tried, <laughs> I've tried. I, I actually at one point tried to find him mm. and I unfortunately found his obituary. Oh, wow. And it wasn't that long after I was in his class and he, you know, quote unquote died of cancer. And I sort of like, I'm dubious. Yeah. I kind of feel like I don't believe that. Mm. How old was he when he died, you know? Uh, I, young, I, huh? He was young. He was young. Yeah. yeah. So you're trying to find out maybe. Yeah. Interesting. There's, I mean, I saved his obituary, so it's like I have names of relatives and stuff like that. I kind of want to know, but who knows? It's like, you know, at that time, maybe he wasn't even out to them, mm. you know? But I know there's like literally no doubt in my mind. And I feel like that's sort of like tribalism – I mean, it's sort of like the same in hardcore. Like when you meet people yeah. and you just know, you're like, yeah, you're, you're fucking one of us. Yeah. And you met some people like that in the scene? I mean, all, yeah. Like, I mean, I'd say like, so what's interesting. Cause it's such a, ma- I know, I know it's like, there's also like this whole like kind of macho, especially the New York scene, very tough, very street. You know what I mean? Right. Like, well, so when I got into hardcore though, it, it's tough. Because I don't want to like be like, yo, I used hardcore, <laughs> but yeah. like, but on some level, hardcore was like the best closet I could find, mm. you know, like it really was like when I found like skinheads, I was like, yo, this style's dope. <laughs> and like, and, and so one of the dudes that befriended my brother during that 15 minutes, um, he was very, you know, it's funny, like I, I, when I look back on this now, it sounds crazy, but it's like you can't 
if you weren't in, in, in the hardcore scene in the 80s, if you weren't around skinheads in the 80s, some of this stuff is really difficult to understand. Yeah. Like, because even amongst people that you and I were probably friends with, there were people who weren't that, like, they might have been repping white pride or, like, mm. you know, shit like that. Like, they might have been doing, you know, I you come from, like, D.C. area and yeah. stuff. I'm always talking about the lefty dilemma, right? Yeah, where you're just like, how what yeah and so there were Scary. a lot there were a lot of people where it was just like the waters between sort of like yeah there were the sharps and yeah there were the nazis but then there was that whole crowd in between which was most of the skinheads really and they were questionable <laughs> a lot yeah. of people were a little bit questionable back then yeah did did you did you want to come out like when you were young or just were you too scared definitely scared um i mean i was especially as a skinhead and in the 80s i was actually also like very homophobic like so this was just like you something. were yeah wow. i mean because i hated myself <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and and also like you know it's and funny you raised to hate you raised it was bad yeah. absolutely and and so Damn. at that time again like if you're not there this is difficult to understand especially like new york hardcore but people fucking gay bashed people know, absolutely hard, that was a thing that was socially acceptable in the scene like nobody was like you know I never heard anybody defend gay people when they were like, yo, you want to go fag bash or something like that. Like it was never, never heard a damn thing. I heard crazy stories in DC of that happening a lot too, man. Yeah. Scary, man. With lefty. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, so it was, it was a known fact to me that coming out was not just, um, you know, difficult from a social perspective, but it was also a safety issue. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I always talk about like when Mike bullshit came out because that was like a watershed moment. I feel like, and the way he did it, I remember just being like, this is like super like in my head. I never said this out loud. It was, (laughs) it was classy because like, you know, he basically just put out an issue of bullshit monthly one, one week. And it was like, you know, you look at the masthead and it said bullshit monthly is proudly gay owned and operated. And I was like, I remember getting that issue and just looking at it and staring at it for like an hour and just being like, Oh my God, I can't believe this dude just did that. Yeah. It's pretty fucking punk actually. <laughs> yeah. And, and this was at the time too, where, um, like I remember he was protesting outside of a bad brain show during the quickness tour mm. and he was like, you know, bad brains are anti-gay. Fuck them. You know? And I was just like, yo, that's bold. Like, yeah. you know, at that time, again, like I felt like he was on like a one man crusade, you know, and, and it's not like people shunned him. Like people were very cool about it ultimately. But I also heard a lot of people talk shit behind his back. Yeah. And I just didn't want to be that. I thought he was blowing up my spot. And so like mm. I was talking shit, you know, like I was saying homophobic shit about him. And we've talked about this, wow. since. you know, like it's wasn't the singer for MDC. MDC singer. Uh, you know what? M- I think so, but I don't. I'm not. I, I'm not 100 on that. But. Yeah, but I also like that was a band that like. I, New York's very insular, right? It is. Like dude. we sort of like I only cared about New York shit. <laughs> <laughs> not till later on. I definitely. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Wow. So you were friends with Mike Bullshit too. So we became friends as sort of adversaries, quote unquote. But really, I was using him as a way to sort of understand myself. Gotcha. So we would have these like debates and like, 
you know, I was coming from this like homophobic standpoint of like basically saying all the things that I was raised to believe, all the things that in the 80s that society sort of had had reinforced. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily even that my it wasn't completely just the Latin Pentecostal homophobia. But, you know, again, if you're in the 80s, you're in Jerry Falwell, Jimmy Swaggart, the moral majority. You know, you're you're looking at an entire system of church, government, the legal system. Everyone is against you. Yeah. So this was, you know, what do you do when like literally your family, your government, your church, like every system that's available to you, the music you love, literally everything is against you. You know, at that point, like I remember there was like a, in that band in your face, you know, they had, oh, um, Long Island. yeah, they had a demo and the opening track to the demo was this like intro mosh part called faggot stomp. And what? <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was like, wow. this was acceptable. She would never fly right now, man. No, <laughs> it's crazy to me because for me, punk and Harker was like, maybe I'm just naive living in a little weird PMA, but always for me, it was this positive community. Everyone's equal. We all come from crazy backgrounds and, and childhoods, and we all go to this place, and we all sing along to this music, and we're all like a family under one roof. That that was my vision of what I got from hardcore. Like everyone's accepted; it doesn't fucking matter, man. But I know it's. And I wonder if that was just it was, and it wasn't just New York, as we're saying. It was DC, probably everywhere else. It was a really. Yeah, man, it's crazy. I mean, maybe that. DC had some sort of extra effect on you because I feel like New York, later on it was more like New York felt very gatekeeper. It very much felt like you had to like earn your spot and CDs on the Bowery. Yeah, you know, like I and 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 I fucking worked hard to earn my spot. You really tried because yeah. I was a fucking little kid, right? Like yeah. I always say, like I'm I'm fucking one year younger than Sammy and one year older than Freddie. Mm. So, so I'm in this zone of like, you know, at that time we're all children, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, but I, and as a child, you want to impress the older kids. Were you acting tough and stuff? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I was getting into fights. I was doing the whole wow. shit. Wow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like just I over I, like trying to be super. Like, yeah, it's crazy. I wanted to impress the older kids, and I want, and also like again, it was it was sort of a safety concern. It was just sort of if people are like, okay, yeah, like he can take care of himself, then it was sort of like. No one would fuck with you. You're cool. Yeah. Plus, you had your cool guys around you and stuff. Those older yeah. guys. And what did your parents think about like you being a skin and going to shows? And uh, you know, they were sort of oblivious. I always joke that like I was able to get into hardcore so young because my parents didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. So like you know, they. I honestly feel like I don't think they truly even understood until like maybe there was this point in like 1989 where like my dad was like where do you go every weekend <laughs> every sunday <laughs> and i was like oh i just i hang out on on the bowery and my dad was just like what <laughs> different time too then. right like i mean it was literally just all flop houses and cbs and and the bodega across the street <laughs> yeah he's like what the hell so he was like really and i was like oh it's fine it's fine and he was just like Oh my God, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> but like, were you like getting in trouble or arrested? You weren't a bad kid. Like, no, I did get, I did, um, get taken home by the cops only once just from graffiti. Oh yeah. I'm a, I'm a good kid. Otherwise. What was your tag? What was your tag name? What was your name? Uh, I wrote two things, Aura and Mecca, M-E-C-H-A. 
<laughs> so you were doing graffiti, you were doing everything. Yeah, like that was, I mean, but the graffiti thing was definitely just like, dude, you grew up in Queens. Of course you're going to do graffiti. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't affecting your grades and anything like that. No, like, I was still like A plus all the way through. But when I did, so in basically my last year of school before I dropped out, I completely just, it went from A to F immediately because I just stopped. Yeah. I would go into classes and just go to sleep. At that point, like all I wanted was to leave Long Island and go back to the city. And yeah. so I started doing some research and I found out that when you're 16 years old, at least at that time in New York, you could stop going to school and uh, they can't force you. Like there was like this That's weird, crazy. it wasn't, yeah, there was like this weird thing. And so um, I just, I would refuse to wake up like my mom would be like get up you gotta go to you know no and it just completely until finally the school called and was like look either he needs to come back or you need to sign him out and so you know i had this long drawn out fight with my mom and uh and then she was like and i was like look you're not gonna get me to go back and then she was like well you're not gonna live here if you do and i was like that's perfect you like 16, 17? 16. So like basically as soon as I turned 16, it was like out. It, I was out. And so wow. she signed me out. And <clears throat> I always remember this day because I, I feel like this day actually changed my life in a lot of ways. Like we went to the school. My guidance counselor was there. And I had talked to my guidance counselor. She knew my deal. Like she was like, you're smart. You're not being challenged here. Like you're not being socially nourished here. Like I had, I had no friends. Like I had one friend. He was the security guard who was also a skinhead. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And I, and I somewhat talked to this girl who showed up into class once with a girl biscuits t-shirt. And I was like, are you into girl biscuits? And she was like, nah, it's my sister's t-shirt. I just grabbed it off the floor or whatever. And I was like, that's cool. And I was close enough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Did your counselor know you were gay? No, 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 nobody knew at that time. And so like I basically I walked in and we we signed out and my mom started crying. She put on this big show and uh, she's like, oh, you know, like because, okay, to be to be generous, (laughs) (laughs) my parents are immigrants and they very much came here with the whole American dream. And this was not in the cards for their American dream for me. Yeah. And so I get it. Like. It still felt a little maudlin, but I mm-hmm. was like, okay. And Sun shaved uh, down with like boots on. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, so she's crying. She's holding the pen. It, I mean, it literally just looks like a scene out of a movie. Wow. And my guidance counselor literally just grabs, she, she grabs her hand as she's signing the papers. And she's like, look at me. And, uh, and my mom looks up and my guidance counselor literally says to her, do you know him? Wow. And my mom was completely taken aback. And my guidance counselor was like, he's going to be fine. Wow. And I was like, holy shit. That's amazing. And, you know, and I talked to her afterwards and she was, you know, my guidance counselor. And, you know, she said that she just sort of reiterated the point. She's like, you're really smart. You, whatever you decide to do, you're going to be fine. And yeah. it really like that affected me because I didn't feel like I'm walking out into like nothingness. I really did feel like I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. And you weren't playing guitar or nothing then? Uh, no, just like, you know, 
in my bedroom. Um, like drums were my first instrument. Okay. And, uh, you good at drums? I don't think so, (laughs) 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 but, but when I, when I first, so actually, so Massapequa, interestingly enough, was the site of my first band and my first band I played drums in, I was, um, a freshman in high school and the singer of my first band was Rob Vitale. No way. Yeah. Wow. And, and so Rob was a senior. He was in my brother's grade. And he saw me walking around and he was just like, who the fuck is this skinhead walking around Massapequa? Yeah. And we just started talking and, um, and he was like, I want to sing for a band. And I was like, well, I play drums, you know, and we put together this really bad band. (laughs) Wow. We called it, we called it positive outlook and we were terrible. (laughs) Um, and I think I actually quit before our first show. <laughs> oh, and I don't even know if they played many shows past that, but I was just like, yeah, this is not for me. Damn, what a singer, man, Rob. Man. Yeah. What a but even back then, even back then, he was, it was, he, he knew how to sing. He knew how to project. He knew how to like, he was, it was a very unique voice for a hardcore band. And yeah. so it was like when he came out later, you know, in Black Train Jack and started doing it, I was really like, you know, super proud and like, yeah, goes like the church or opera singer or something. Yeah. Like, I think it was opera trained or yeah. Rest in peace, Rob Vitale, man. That was heavy, man. That was hard. Yeah. Damn. That's crazy. You had a band with him though. Wow. Yeah. That was probably in 88 even. So then when you quit, like, do you have a job at that point when you quit school or no? So I quit and was basically couch surfing. I went back to the city and just sort of kind of just was random until, um, I decided, uh, fuck it. I'm going to move into a temple. And, uh, and so I moved into the Philadelphia temple. Wow. It was that through like one away or shelter. Those bands inspired you through Ray. Like I had, so I straight edge too at the time. Yeah, yeah. I'd been straight edge the whole time. And then, um, I love how you're holding headphones cause your hair is so perfect. I you know. Have perfect hair, man. <laughs> you, you have a great hairline by the way. <laughs> anyway, Thank ahead. you. Um, <laughs> no, I, so I had met Ray in, like maybe 89 and you know when you're a fucking young kid meeting ray capo in 1989 it's just like holy shit and it's crazy to me now because when i think about it it's like ray's not even that much older than me but i thought he was like yoda you know (laughs) and all those uh, guys seem way much older yeah and so i you know so we met and at that point he was already into krishna and he was already doing doing the thing and um and i had first went to a temple maybe like a year before that um largely because i just wanted krishna beads like i they were cool yeah like the, all those chromax pictures and i was like that's dope i want that yeah it was like a style yeah yeah <laughs> so i went to the the first time i went to a temple was literally just to get the beads this was like 88 and then uh and then like but then ray would start talking you know to me and like he'd tell me stuff and i was always like oh this really you know that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. It was like very like slow, but I was sort of like, uh, you know, like, I don't know if I'm, you know, want to move into this whole yeah. thing. And then, um, in May of 1990, my best friend died in a car accident. And I was like, you know, that was like my first real brush with mortality where yeah. I was really like, okay, like we're going to die. <laughs> yeah. And he was, you know, I was, 16 he was 18 it was very like 
okay, shit, like, what am I doing with my life? You know, it's one of those come to Jesus moments. Yeah. And I came to Krishna. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect timing for your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much, um, you know, maybe like, it took some time, maybe like 10 months or something after that. And then I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. And at, at that point, I had started my first, I'd say, real band, which was Fountainhead. Mm-hmm. And Bill, who was the singer of Fountainhead, also passed um but he oh maybe that's bad (laughs) it's a bad omen for singers in my band but (laughs) but um oh yeah but bill um had moved into the temple and he was like you should definitely come you know and i was like okay and then of course and ray was absolutely egging me on ray had been egging me on to drop out of high school for fucking a long time (laughs) and i i still sort i (laughs) still i mean it's funny because we i've I've talked about it with him recently and he was just like but you you don't regret it right it was like still like the best thing you ever did (laughs) and i was like i don't regret it at all like yeah it started my life so were you vegetarian already too yeah i went vegetarian in 88 straight edge and by like 87 for sure it's awesome man yeah are you still vegetarian? I am. How about Edge? Uh, no, but I, I, I lasted till about two thousand four. Wow, that's, good. that's a good run. <laughs> but I've never. Also, it's funny. Like I don't. I'm still very much one of those people who like I've never been drunk. Like yeah. I don't really get drunk. Like I might um get a little buzz, but like yeah, I barely drink. What you drink of choice? Uh, usually like wine, honestly. Yeah, yeah chill, it's yeah. very like I'm I'm a I'm a very casual about it. I've I've never smoked pot. I've never done a drug. Oh wow! I don't like yeah. That's pretty much as unedged as I am. As yeah. I, I have wine with dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you in contact with your parents when all of a sudden you're living in a Christian temple? Um, Do they know where you're at? Yes. No phones back then, really. They they did know, and I. Uh, I tried to maintain contact with them because I didn't want them to think that I just joined some fucking crazy cult, yeah, you know, or something like that. And, See with the um, airport and stuff, right? I mean, like, and to them, anything that wasn't Christianity was most likely a cult anyway. Straightish probably was too, or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. So I, I, I tried to keep in touch, um, but I think when I consciously decided to stop keeping in touch was when, um, so I came back to visit one weekend. And I was staying at the house and it was a Sunday morning and they, they all went to church and I stayed home and the phone rings and I answer the phone and it's my oldest brother who is 10 years older than me. So like I barely have a relationship with him, but, um, so he's like, Oh my God, how are you doing? Like, what are you, what are you doing there? You know? And I was like, Oh, I'm just home visiting for the weekend. And he's like, great. That's great. How's college? (laughs) and i was like what do you mean and and he was like mom said you want to go to college and i was like "Mm." (laughs) hmm you never told her that right now no no she completely was just so embarrassed that she lied to my own brother about where i was and so i told him the truth he was like wow okay um but he was chill and uh and basically like and at this point, again, remember, like, I'm still a kid. I know. So she comes home, and I fucking went ballistic. And I was like, you fucking lied about me to my own brother. 
fuck you. And like, I was going, it was definitely not saintly Krishna talk. I was upset. (laughs) What is the proper name for the Krishna tale thing? Do you have Uh, that? Sika. You have that at the time? I did, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you screaming at your mom. (laughs) I was, I was livid. But I mean, like, I have this long standing antagonistic relationship with my mom that pretty much started from the beginning. My first memory of my mother is her telling me the only reason I had you is because I wanted a girl. Wow, dude. So it's like, she was basically like telling me to fuck off. That's horrible. And so we've, we had that relationship all the way through. And then when that happened, I was like, fuck this. Like, I can't do this anymore. And like, we didn't talk for probably a year more after that. What about your dad? Were you talking to him? My dad sort of like, unfortunately, is I'd say he's like the baby with the bathwater. Like he kind of, you know, is his wife. Like he kind of sided with her all the time. But in in this sort of like soft, resigned kind of way where I sort of felt like, you know, I wanted to be like, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Say something. Yeah, stand up for yourself. But he, he never, he never stood up for himself. He never stood up for me. And so it was like, you know. I never felt resentful towards him. Um, you know, maybe at some point I did, but like as an adult at like at this point in my life, I don't, I don't feel any sort of misgivings. I'm sort of like, you know, she was, she was a lot. And yeah. Are they both still around? No, they're both dead. Wow. Yeah. But I, I honestly, so I stopped talking to them in 2003 and, uh, like they, they pretty much cut the cord on me. And then, um, that was, it was one, I had this one blowout conversation with my mother basically where it was the conversation where I came out to her, where I sort of like also. How old were you then when you came with Puma? Like 29 or 30. Okay. Something like that. And, um, and, and, you know, I think I only came out to them then at that point was cause like we had this relationship, but it was completely fake. And, you know, she'd call and be like, how are you? And I'd be like, fine. You know, it was like. You know, nobody, I don't need that. I don't want that. I want real relationships, but our relationship was already fucked from years of physical, mental, psychological, emotional abuse that like, I couldn't like, I couldn't process. We had to start over. Yeah. And so we had this conversation where it was like the start over conversation. And I basically just, you know, I told her everything. I was like, it was like a, this is your life kind of thing where I was like you, this is who your son is and also this is who you are yeah. she never acknowledged up until that point all of the shit that she put me through she never acknowledged beating the shit out of me every day until I was like 12 years old and old enough to fight back wow like it was literally there was no acknowledgement whatsoever and so for me and I'd worked this out beforehand with my therapist Okay, <laughs> I was like for me I just needed to hear her acknowledge that this happened. Yes. I didn't want a fucking apology. I didn't care. Like just acknowledge that it happened. And then maybe we can have an adult relationship. And so we got to that place where she acknowledged it after some hedging, you know, it went from, well, that didn't quite happen that way to, well, it's not as bad as you say Mm. to, okay. You know, it was like yeah. the, the stages of grief. <laughs> I feel like a lot. I think I feel like my. I think parents have like a selective memory on the way things were growing up. Sure. Because I have some things with my mom, like her forgetting she kicked me out. Just different things with her that 
I try to bring them up. She doesn't remember or the camera. It was a different way to her. You know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and in growing up, I tried so hard to be empathetic to all of the ways in which these things may have happened. You know, I was always yeah. like, my parents were extremely old by the time I came around. Like when she said that the only reason she had me is because she wanted a girl. Part of the reason was that she was also old. She was like 45 when she had me. Okay. And, you know, the doctors basically said, like, I was a health risk to her. So, you know, she took that risk and then, yeah, boom. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I, I sort of, I understood, one, that, that she's much older than me. Two, that she comes from a different culture and background. Like, I didn't know what it was like in Colombia. Like, I didn't know how she yeah. she was raised. You know, like, I was just like, oh, she's from a different generation. She's from a different culture. You keep giving her excuses. Yeah, exactly. It was just nonstop excuses. And it got to a point where, actually, I know exact, the exact point when the excuses stopped was when my godchild came into the world. Mm. And I remember there was a... Um, there was a time in Chicago where they drew on my couch with a marker (laughs) (laughs) and I was in the shower and I came out and saw like my couch like covered in Sharpie. And, and I remember looking at them and being like, uh, and they were so scared, you know? And I was just like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh You know? And I was like, and I went into my room and I got dressed and, and as I was getting dressed, I remember, you know, the first thought was sort of like whimsical. It was like, oh, my God, my mother would have beat the fucking shit out of me. Yeah. And then the second thought was, wow, I could not imagine ever laying a hand on a child. Mm-hmm. And just and now I have this real child in front of me. And like the idea of of my physical force exerted on that child yeah. was insane to me. Mm-hmm. And to be like, my mother used to fucking whip me, beat me with fucking wooden clogs, like wow. just fucking whatever she could get her hands on or just straight up punch me with her fists. Like all of a sudden, all the excuses ended and it was like, you know what? This is a total fucking issue of a lack of humanity. Yeah. This has nothing to do with culture or generation or anything. Like this is a lack of humanity. You cannot yeah. do that shit. And so... I think like we had that conversation. It was sort of like a very, you know, I thought it was going to end <laughs> differently <laughs> because I, you know, I gave her this option and I just, yeah. I just said to her like, look, Hey, we can do it like this. Like I'm willing to like, just forget the past. I'm willing to let go. All I ask of you is that from this point forward, we have a relationship that's based on unconditional love and, honesty, and, yeah. and I mean, unconditional period yeah. as we are we'll figure it out and i was like if for some reason you can't do that or don't want to do that that's up to you but if that's the case lose my number wow don't call me back and you know her response to that like in my mind as a godparent much less a freaking blood parent yeah that's i would never consider that you know, I'd be like, yeah, no, let's work it out. I love you. <laughs> yeah, kid, yeah. yeah. But her response was, is that an ultimatum? Wow. And I was like, yo, if that's how you're going to take it, then fine. Yes, that's an ultimatum. It's up to you, you know? And, uh, and that was it. And six months later, 
She never called back. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm at this point. If you call me back, I'm going to be like, fuck you. So I'm changing my number. I, I went out and literally within the next week called up a lawyer, started getting paperwork to change my name. And you know, that was the end of that. That was the end of that. (laughs) Holy shit, man. So you kept in touch with your brothers and stuff. Nope. Wow. Completely, completely, you know, total family cutoff then completely done. Yeah. And I mean, I will say this, like, so because my last point of contact was her and because I know now, as I've told you that she has a history of lying to my family members about me, (laughs) I don't know what she told them. They may think like, she may have been like, I mean, this sounds crazy, but I don't think it's crazy to be like, you know, she may have been like, oh, he's got AIDS or something, you know, like I could see her making up some wild shit, um, that, you know, would cut me off from them. I was very, I will say this. So the only reason I know that they're dead, my parents, is that I Googled their obituaries. No fucking way. It was the only way. I was just curious one day and I was like, this has to exist online if, if something happened. Are my parents still alive. Yeah. And I, and I found this website that actually, this is a really fucking morbid website, but it, it, it actually like takes pictures of people's tombstones. Okay. And like, so I have a picture of my mother's tombstone (laughs) that I saved and it was really, yeah, it was just sort of like one of those things where you're like, wow, like I, there wasn't any grieving. Like I didn't cry. I wasn't like, I feel like the grieving all happened in 2003. I was like prepared for them to, to never see them again, basically. But to see that, you know, that was very real. Yeah. And, uh, and so the biggest sort of regret, and I don't know if it's a regret cause I had no control over this, but the biggest sort of thing that I'm like, oh, that sucks is that my mother died first. That there was like a two year window or something before my dad died. Mm. And I really would have liked to have a conversation with him man to man, like kind of like, you know, right, gonna, yeah. right. Like just to. I I really wish that that opportunity had presented itself, but clearly like whatever she told them, it was enough for them to not even try to reach out to me to let me know. It's crazy, man. It's, so, yeah. It's unreal, man. Yeah. Or the dad even trying to reach out, but obviously we knew your dad was just like, whatever she says. Right. Wow. And again, like, I don't know what she said. She may have said to them, he said, you're all fucking awful people. And he never wants to talk to us again. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. So I've, I've had this thing in my mind where I wanted to like maybe reach out to my oldest brother, the one that I don't have a real relationship with. I know where he he is. I found him online. Yeah. He lives in Denver. Like I was just in Denver, (laughs) but like, you know, it's, it's that thing of just like, do I really want to open this wound up? Like, I don't know. Like, is, is this really going to provide any closure? I, but I'm such a fucking curious dude. Like curiosity gets me into trouble, man. Yeah, but it is your brother. It'd be nice to have a conversation and see what he was told, where you went, what happened. That's fucking insane, dude. Yeah. You got family out there. It's like, it's heavy, man. I think the religious part um, complicates it though, because I, I also know because of social media that both of my brothers are like still very super religious. Okay. Super Christian. And so they may just be like, you know, fuck you, you gay devil. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. Do I want to put myself through that? 
I don't know. Or if they checked out your band, I'm sure they checked out your band and what you're up to. They had to be looking up, looking up you. You, yeah, you would think. I mean, obviously, I looked them up, and uh, you know. So they never saw any of your bands playing none of that stuff. No. Wow, man. Nothing. So it's been it's been a little bit wild. Like I definitely, you know, when I changed my name and like I made a will and power of attorney, I did all this paperwork because basically I was also like. I don't want to be in a situation where something happens and I am in a hospital or I die. And then all of a sudden they have any power over you. Right. Yeah. So I had to like make all this paperwork that basically is like no blood relative can claim anything on this person. (laughs) So it's fucking intense, man. Yeah. That's That is fucking crazy, man. So now you're just out in the world. You don't, they're not, not talking to your family. You're playing music. Just living, that's it. That's yeah. it. And yeah. and you, so you never came out. You obviously came out before you told your parents, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was out to my friends, and it's weird. Like even coming out is like a. Did your friends like we knew we already knew? I think everybody. Knew. Nobody was like what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like I was out like you know sleeping with girls or anything like that. Yeah. You know, like I was very. So you, you know, never did any girls growing up? Nothing. I did in high school, like yeah, but like not serious you know i was never like seriously on the hunt you know it was yeah sort of just like oh okay this girl's cool like we'll hang out and, and did you have boyfriends like secret relationships that nobody knew about um no but that's because i was i had taken vows of celibacy <laughs> oh yeah, for the Christians. yeah yeah so it was really How like long? it uh so i joined in 91 formally and then it wasn't until so Texas broke up in ninety the beginning of nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, and at that point, I was in a really bad place in a, in a variety of ways. Like nineteen ninety seven was a very dark year. I was obviously the band breaking up. I had so many feelings about that, and yeah. I was really <clears throat> just like fucked up. And then on top of that, it was like you know that thing of like you're in a real like I've always had major depressive disorder that's like a since I was a child kind of thing like literally I remember being a child and being severely depressed yeah which is you know could could that because you were hiding your sexuality I think there was partially like situational things like you know my family life my sexuality like all those things but then there's also this so many rules and pressures and fucking right there's also this neurological component right that I can't you know, those things I can't fix. Yeah. But when you have major depressive disorder and you're in a severe depressive episode um, and you have money in the bank, so you don't have to like work or have responsibilities or anything like 1997 was just the darkest year. Cause I literally would just like, I did two things that year. I sat in my bedroom, just like sleeping the days away, just completely fucking out of my mind depressed or I'd go to the Pink Pony on Ludlow, uh, and like, and I would sit there and just drink coffee until I was like sweating out of my mind. <laughs> and then I would just like walk around like a zombie, just walk around New York City, just like wow. you know, with headphones on, just like completely fucked out of my mind. Like I just was so, it was just so dark, and I was like very suicidal at that point. Yeah, and it, the whole thing, and this was like, I would say the peak of when I realized like, okay, 
I've got to sort out this sexuality stuff. Like, and so that was when I was like, okay, the first thing I need to do is break my vow of celibacy. <laughs> How long are you celibate for? How many years? Uh, I mean, I was at least six. What? Something like, yeah. And there's no masturbation, none of that stuff, right? Well. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, that's part of the rules. Theoretically. That's part yeah. of the rules, though, yeah. But I, I'd be honest, like, nobody follows that. <laughs> okay. I'm just wondering, like, not saying that's bad. That, that's no yeah. joke, six years. Wow, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So now you're just like going to the going to the bar, right? Whatever, drinking right. coffee. It was yeah. It was in New York at that time. There was a gay coffee shop called Big Cup. Okay. And that was, or it might have, that actually been the tail end of Big Cup. But I remember like going there in in the closet and just it was it was like such a relief to just sit there because like you know I was still straight edge basically so it was like going to the bars like that wasn't going to happen yeah and but i was like here's this place where i can drink coffee and just sort of be around like i was happy honestly just being around gay people yeah and you know even if i straight isn't krishna yeah (laughs) i was already a mess (laughs) because i had to untangle all these things that i had created as a way to sort of buffer my sexuality and or i mean like i said it was was all a, a tangled web the other aspect of it is punk, skinhead, straight edge, Krishna, all these things to me, surrogate families. Totally. This is what I needed. 100%. I, I needed to feel like people had my back, that I could protect other people, that, you know, there was this sense of connection and bonding that like was special and real. And all of those things to certain extents gave me that. Like I feel like the yeah. Krishna the Krishna thing, you know, my guru he was like a father figure to me. Like I was, you know, I met him when I was 15 and you know, it's, it was, he was the closest I ever got to, to having a dad really in my, in my mind. And so like that was, it was so just messy. Everything Mm. I'd created this fucking mess. That's basically what 1997 was, was reckoning the mess that I've made and just being like, okay, you're in a place right now where, You've got nothing holding you back. Band's gone. Fucking fanzine's gone. Like, you've got no obligations to anyone. How are you going to live your life? Yeah, this is just you now. You're alone in the world, man. Yeah. You don't talk to your family, none of that stuff. It's it's all done. And so what I did was, you know, I got out of that fucking fog, and I was just like, just super fucking impulsively was like, I'm moving to Chicago. And I called up. Uh, Tim Kinsella and I was like what do you pay for rent and he was like like 200 bucks I was (laughs) was like is that normal and he's like yeah it's pretty normal and I was like all right can I stay at your house this weekend he was like yeah so I go to Chicago and in that weekend find an apartment put down my down payment come back book a truck (laughs) I get Rob Fish to fucking drive me to Chicago because I've never had a driver's license in my life Still? Still. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> and uh and we drive to Chicago and, and I just was like, All right, later, and I'm just gonna have this new life. Because at that time, the only people I knew in Chicago were Tim and Kim Nolan. Kim Nolan, yeah. Moon had already moved away. Yeah. So it was just like, you know, that was it. And Kim at that point was moving to Mexico. So I was like, shit. I was like, All right, mm. well, this is good. Total new start. Meeting all new people. And what's great too was that in Chicago, 
like Texas was big in Chicago, but you know, the scene is so insular in Chicago. Like they give a shit about Chicago they bands really do. that like they didn't give that much of a shit that I was in Texas the reason, which was also a blessing. Yeah. And, um, and then, then I also made this conscious decision. I was like, all right, I want to explore house music more. This was something that like I had been exploring a little bit in New York city. Yeah. And, uh, it felt closer to where I needed to be because it was so queer friendly. And like, I was like, okay, I mean, not just queer friendly. I mean, it was queer people invented it. So it was like, all right, this feels like it's a part of my culture. Yeah. Let me, let me really dive deep into this a little bit. And I got a job at gramophone records, which is like considered a legendary record store and house music, like ground zero for Chicago house. And I started working there and, um, and I feel like that's where like, I just finally started to get my shit together. It could be free and be yourself too. Like you're not, you're not, you're not the New York scene anymore. You're not doing, you're not Christian no more. Right. Yeah. You're away from your family, away from New York. You're out. You're being yourself. It's beautiful, man. Yeah. It's like a rebirth. It was. And, and it really, it still took years to get to a place of like feeling completely like myself and not like, a part of all these decisions that I made under duress. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not to say like, you know, I don't want to like talk down on those things that got me through. Yeah. Right. But like, you know, there was a conscious element there. And I think there's always a conscious element there. Like I, I said this to Joe hardcore, uh, when I did his podcast where I was just saying like the thing about hardcore that really fully, got me was that I felt like everyone had a story. Yes. Everyone, you know, and I, I would say like my joke for a long time in the hardcore scene was like, what fucked you up to get here? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And everyone had an answer. Yeah. <laughs> you found like a father figure, like in the Christian world or people found father figures like Kevin seconds was like my dad. You know what I mean? I never even knew the guy, but all right. his lyrics and everything. Man Enough to Care, uh, if you know that song. Yeah. I make those lyrics incredible. Just like that, Emakai and yeah, all the different people we got to see and like look up to became father figures, man. I mean, it's funny to mention Kevin Seconds, too, because like I just did, um, they interviewed me for the liner notes of the Walk Together, Rock Together reissue. Nice. And, uh, and they wanted to, I've, I knew right away when they asked me, I was like, they're going to ask me about Regress No Way. Mm. And, uh, and so like, you know, when I was talking about it, I was, they were like, so what, you know, what did you feel like? Did you know you were gay when you first heard that song or like, you know, whatever. And, um, and I was like, honestly, I was like, my first reaction to that song was like, yo, you're blowing up my spot. (laughs) (laughs) Like I kind of was just like, I can't like this song too much. You know what I mean? Cause like people are going to be like, why you like that song? <laughs> but how cool is it that seven seconds we write about those things back then? Nobody was talking about this. So amazing. I mean, honestly, who talks about it since? <laughs> Nobody. It, not especially not in such a forceful, literal way. Like that, the lyrics to that song are like completely non-ambiguous. It's, yeah. It's it's so. It yeah, like it it completely, it it put me in a place where I at least felt like okay, like my current configuration of hardcore that i'm in 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 new york in the 80s maybe it's not the the most gay friendly place to be yeah but i know that this exists somewhere yeah man you know and that was 
that song I think had a, had a huge part of like me at least sort of being able to be like to justify where I was. Yeah. It's and even men have to care. Like daddy always told you do it like a man, never get too friendly. Someone understand that shit too, about like having like an over manly tough, you got to play sports. You got to do this. You got to just everything about that song. I don't know why it connected to me as a kid. Cause I didn't, didn't really have a dad, but that, that was instilled in me at a young age to be like that. And that changed me as far as like, they, seven seconds opened my mind to everything you know what I mean being yeah. sensitive all that stuff but that song man enough to care and like not just voice fun aggressive no way it's like incredible man that was I mean seven seconds were literally the second hardcore band I ever saw wow so it was like Crumb Suckers was first okay. <laughs> <laughs> Crumb Suckers was seven seconds yeah but then seven seconds and and so like they they had a, a huge impact on totally. on me and and not just uh you know, from the lyrical content, but also musically because they were just ahead of the game. Like, you know, I mean, fuck, like my entire life is basically based on melodic hardcore. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and it was like, to me, that was like the model. Yeah. hundred percent. My fave minor thread, obviously Gorilla biscuits later on for melody and positivity and animal rights stuff. And yeah. Were you a big judge fan too? I liked Judge. I mean, it was definitely like it was too hard for me back then. It, you know, like it's weird. I, I liked, like, you know how I don't know if your friends use the same terminology. I'm always like, I like ignorant shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, People say that bringing it down is a straight edge age of quarrel. Interesting. I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, I liked bringing it down, and I liked Judge, but. I was at that point. I wasn't crazy about metal. Me either, man. So like it, that felt a little too metal to me. The seven yeah. inch to me was like I was like, yeah, this is fucking the shit. Great, loved it. Perfect. Yeah, but the metal thing at that point, like I kind of had to like grow into that because at the time, and and it was also like that time where like a lot of things were changing and sort of like I remember hearing the uh, the bold seven inch on Crucial Chaos for the first time mm. and being like. Oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, you know, this is actually like paved some ways, you totally. know? Like it did some things. Like like think about the second Uniform Choice album. I'm still not so sure about that. I know, but it, it just totally opposite. I, I listened to the first one, which is incredible. Right. I didn't realize how much of a minor threat bite it is. No disrespect, but just some of the song right. titles, everything. But then like the second album staring into the sun, like a total different band. It's crazy. Yeah. Man. I mean, I feel like, but here's the thing. So like I give credit to those bands, whether or not their experiments were successful or not, or somewhere in between, because one, it takes courage 100%. <laughs> to fucking, you know, try to branch out and 100%. do something different. Did the same thing. And two, this is a thing that like is something that I still feel very strongly about, which is that hardcore to me has a built in like um obligation to evolve. Love I think that. that we feel like a lot of times like we feel like change is a dirty word. But it's like at the same time it's like what were all the records we were listening to? Screaming for change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. about time that we had to change. Yeah. Make a change. Like it was like True. We were screaming about change, and then people change, and we're like, "What the fuck?" I know, you know, so true. <laughs> so the it's new like new record. People flipped. I loved it. I just want people to evolve, and yeah. I feel like, you know, that doesn't mean necessarily like making one eighties. Like that means just sort of like 
staying true to your compass, finding your way and changing in the ways that sort of like make sense to you. I feel like you, people say to me all the time, oh, you haven't changed. I think a lot of that is like, yeah, I mean, maybe on a basic level, I'm the same type of person. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm friendly, I'm, you yeah. know, like I'm thoughtful or I try to be, you same know what I mean? Line. Like, yeah, same hairline. A <laughs> little bit of gray now, but we're good. Yeah, we're good um, <laughs> but like all those things, yeah, I get those base level things about me are, are probably true. But I've evolved in other ways. I've evolved ideologically. I've evolved politically. I've evolved spiritually, emotionally. Um, I like to think that I've evolved in terms of even, you know, like I always say, like in Texas, I was a shitty collaborator. Like mm. I thought that the best bands were the ones where, you know, one guy sort of like, is, is sort of like taking the, taking the lead, you know? Mm. And, you know, we had some success with me, you know, sort of like trying to drive the bus with maybe some unwilling passengers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, fine. But it was part of the reason why we broke up because the people were just like, well, come on, like, you know, yeah. I get that. Now it's like, you know, I fucking love collaborating. I love like, yeah. you know, I want that. I want that energy. I want to trade ideas. I want to create things that I couldn't possibly create by myself yeah. that only happen through collaboration. So yeah. like just things like that, that I feel like made me a shittier person back then. I'd like to say that I'm less shitty now. Okay. Yeah. We all grow. We all change. You know what I mean? Yeah. We get more, become more adults, more mature. Cause I feel like we're big kids also to get to play music and do all this awesome stuff that, not many people get to do. But you can see also like why hardcore, like it's weird, especially in the hardcore scene. I do feel like there's this premium or like respect for like that dude's the same dude, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, is he? Is he? <laughs> <laughs> and is that good? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not necessarily, yeah, it's true. Yeah. There's a lot of just kind of, a lot of ones, a lot of people that bands that we know kind of do, they kind of are kind of doing kind of the same thing and some moved on became parents moved away did other things not just one thing yeah it's just, right it's so true man i will say that like my favorite transformations are when like hardcore kids become parents because i do think like that's where the evolution is like forced on you love it yeah yeah man it's life-changing um i want to go back to texas reason a little bit about the the genre that they kind of said you guys were or which is the word that's been thrown as emo core thing that like i've seen you talk about it before too i've seen ian talk about it just when you guys came out your style and your sound they had to all of a sudden just give it a name this is what it is right well uh, they, but they didn't call us that when we were a band like it was, it was after it was very after yeah it was it was when there was a scene to sort of where people were just trying to name it yeah that's what i mean like that's because you could say the same thing rights of spring embrace you know, the summer of love, the whole time period in, in D.C. and stuff, you know, that same. Because I'm sure you guys are inspired by those bands as well. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, I would say that from my perspective anyway, there was always, there was three legs to sort of like the Texas sort of formula. There was D.C., that sort of melodicism and that, that kind of like, especially on that first seven inch, that sort of like raw yeah. melodicism. Then like New York, which at the time was very, you know, post helmet drop D like sort of yeah. like heavy shit. And then uh Brit pop. 
Interesting. <laughs> which was just something we were all very, it was the only other thing we sort of all very much agreed on. Okay. We loved, you know, I mean, obviously the Beatles, um, but like Oasis, there was this, there's this element of swag that we, that actually like opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Cause I feel like before Texas, playing in Resurrection, 108, yeah. Shelter, like the premium was based on sort of the reality, right? So like you went in, like I, the clothes that I wore on stage were the clothes that I wore that day. Yes, right? 100%. And it was just like, I'm just, I'm just a hardcore kid and I'm just <laughs> yeah. doing it like I do it. Yeah. Um, but Texas, at some point during our, our, our run, um, I had the realization that like, and especially as we started getting bigger and I was like, okay, like, hang on a minute. People are like paying you to perform. Mm-hmm. Ergo, you're a performer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, I, and I know that that felt like a dirty word, but I was like, no, I mean, like, I want to give thought into what I'm presenting. I want to give thought into how I'm presenting myself. I want to give thought into what the person is experiencing who bought a ticket. Yeah, totally. And then all of a sudden, like a lot of other things started like coming to play. Like, am I really like interesting to look at? Maybe I need to look at videos of myself and be like, would I pay to see me? Wow. <laughs> yeah, You know, like, and I started, I did, I would look, I literally started looking at old videos of myself and being like critiquing myself and being like, wow. dude, you're just standing there. Or like, you know, like, oh, that looks stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And I started like changing and sort of developing who I was when I walk out on stage. Like, Mm. and that's not to say that that part of you is false, but it's, it's part of the thing where I realized, and this is like, this is something that I think has, has now landed me in a totally different place as an adult where I realized that you are a lot of different things at the same time. It's true. There's no, like you can argue that some of these things feel incoherent, but they can exist at the same time all the time. And your goal is not to pick the best version of you that you can find or like, and or say like, well, I know this is a part of me, but I'm going to suppress this over here. Yeah. Right. I learned this from obviously the closet, but Mm -hmm. like, your job is to look at all the things you are and to create the best integrated version. And I always talk about this thing. I don't know who, where I heard this originally, but it's stuck with me. It's, it's something that I think about all the time, which is that relationship between the two words, integration and integrity. And that became like my obsession. I was like, I need to just accept that I'm a lot of different things that don't always make sense all the time. Yeah. And I need to be able to present myself as an integrated human being. Good, bad, ugly, beautiful, whatever. (laughs) And, and so to a certain extent, like that stage persona, you know, hardcore purists might be like, yo, that's not real, you know, but it is, it's in me. I'm not picking any of these things from outside of me. I'm picking the things from inside of me that I can bring to a stage and present and, and feel like I'm doing something worth watching. Yeah. 
Totally. Because if people want to hear the songs, you can listen to the album. Yeah. You're coming to see something. Yeah. That's totally true because like, these are different. You, it's not like you only listen to one type of music as well. You listen to everything. So there's the different inspirations coming out in Texas, right? That you yeah. That you weren't really showing in 108 or Shelter or Resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. It's all still you. It's not being forced. Right. But people probably automatically thought that because it's a different band with a different sound and different style. And Well, so what's interesting is that I feel like, and I've been thinking about this more as we move into the 30th anniversary of Antimatter. Yes. Antimatter to me is a part of my story that I feel like gets buried a little bit. But I think to like literally thousands of people around the world, they will say that antimatter was like a gate into something for mm-hmm. them. And I've literally heard this for the last 30 years. Antimatter changed the way I listen to music. Antimatter, awesome. you know, like introduced me to so many things that I never would have listened to otherwise. So here's the the weird, dirty secret is that I believe that I was some somehow subconsciously because I knew. So in 1993, when Shelter and 108 went on tour, me and Chris Daly were we had started essentially conceiving Texas is the yeah. reason. And so in the fall of 1993, I put out the first issue of Antimatter in some way. I feel like that entire project was sort of priming people for what I was about to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it was sort of introducing people to the music that I really loved and, yeah. and sort of hoping that they'll see what I see in it. Like even it was outrageous. The first issue had swerve driver in it. Wow. It, it was like a shoegaze band, like yeah. from England. Like what, <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Yeah. But my conviction was if you listen to this, the way I hear it, you're going to hear the connections. Yeah. You're going to make those connections for yourself. And it's like, the fact is now 30 years later, there's like an entire subgenre of fucking hardcore and post-hardcore that's basically shoegaze. Yeah. You know, bands like Nothing or The Last Title Fight record or, you know, like, it's just like there's so much stuff that's happening now that's like based on those types of sounds. So a lot of things about that fanzine for me was like, and it goes back to the the talk about evolution. The 90s were a crazy time for hardcore because... I think everybody sort of woke up on January 1st, 1990 and was like, you know, let, let's try something different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where you got quicksand. That's where you got inside out. That's yeah. where you got shelter. That's where you got all these bands that were coming up and even bands that were like hardcore, like a band like burn, they were still doing that shit wildly different. They really were, man. And, and they were, and I was fucking there for it. I loved it. And yeah. so, Incredible. and that, and that was when my version, what I would say, like my version of ideal hardcore was when I started to feel like we were not necessarily tying ourselves to a specific sound, but to a way of being yeah, and to a community. And that to me is everything that's meaningful. I don't, I don't care if you have fucking thrash beats and mosh parts. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to know who you are and how you're doing it. hundred percent. I feel like that word hardcore is thrown around so much throughout 30 years, whatever. It's not to me. It's not a, a particular sound, like you just said. It's like it's way more than that. It's way deeper than that. It's, you know, it's part of how you live your life. It's part of your values, everything, ethics, all that. And know? I, I do think that this is like a weird story. I remember so Keith Burkhart, the singer for Cause for Alarm. Yeah, I used to live with him in ninety 
93 or 94 or something. Uh, yeah, maybe closer to 94. And at that point, you know, Keith dropped out of hardcore like in 1983 or something. <laughs> like he yeah. was like, I got to, like, I have a kid. I need to do something. Right. So, Respect. so he did his thing. Um, but we were, we were living together at this time. And I remember one day I was listening to Sensefield and he walked into my room and he was just listening to it. And he was like, these guys come from the hardcore scene, don't they? And I was like, wow. they do. And he was like, yeah, you can hear it. Like, it's sort of it's cool to hear that sort of, you know, someone who's completely disconnected from it for 10 years, walk in, listen to a band that's doesn't sound anything like fucking cause for alarm. Yeah. And be able to draw that connection. It's true. To me, that's like, I realize like, oh, actually like what hardcore is even musically is profound. Yeah. Like the DNA of it, it exists. It, ex- it existed in Texas is the reason it exists in Thursday. It exists yeah. in like everything I've ever done, regardless of how far removed it is from quote unquote proper hardcore. Yeah. I remember the GB house, I lived with Walter and Siv and I came home one day and Walter always had new records. He was playing the sugar cubes and he was playing the Smiths meet his murder. And I was like, what is this? Like I, I had heard some stuff like seven seconds with thanking you too. And Kevin had grown his hair out. Yeah. So I started checking out seven, uh, YouTube because of seven seconds. <laughs> but then Walter was playing these two records. I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's like, yeah, you got this band. Walter was always playing stuff that wasn't hardcore in the, in the GB house. And I, he always opened my mind to new things, you know? Yeah. And if you think about the Smiths, just to meet his murder as your album title in the eighties, it's so fucking punk. Oh yeah. Regardless if you like that band or not, just that alone, that message was so powerful. I always joke about how, uh, the unsung hero of nineties, New York hardcore was the Sundays. Because I love the Sundays, man. <laughs> Everybody listened to them too. Everybody, even Isaac loved them. Bro. I went, I I went to a Sunday show, and I remember it was like we were in the balcony. It was me, Alan Cage, Chaka, Mark Ryan. Wow. Like it was literally everyone you can think of, and we were all just like, yes. <laughs> Sundays and the cranberries. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> but it's like you listen to those records, and I remember like listening to Sundays Blind. And and being like, yo, there's parts here that I can totally rip off that are mosh parts. Legit. <laughs> that is funny, man. Yeah, shout out to them. I mean, the, both those bands, too. Like, you don't know why, wh- how they got into the world. If I came through Walter, through our house, Sundays and Cranberries, so good, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I still listen to them, too, man. Yeah. It's crazy because, like, there, there was a part of, like, being punk and hardcore. It was like, you had the blinders on. All I do is listen to punk. That's it. Nothing else. Fuck everything else. Fuck everything else. And then you start opening your mind and meeting more people and listening to other things. Obviously, I loved hip hop and I loved Madonna. But then later on, like just like the, fast forward to now, when you have bands like Turnstile and all these different bands who sound like everything that I love, like pop, everything, man. Yeah. Funk, hip hop, hardcore, everything. Me- all the melodies, like it's beautiful, man. But there's so much stuff that I feel like I feel like a lot of this stuff was it existed in early hardcore and then sort of got petered out through the the sort of curse of purism mm. and like, and then maybe sort of started reemerging later on because like, yeah. And, and even like when you think about like, this is something that I feel like I've wanted to actually dig in deeper to like almost to the level of writing a book about it. Mm-hmm. I remember reading Tony Rettman's New York hardcore book. Oh yeah. I remember that book. Yeah. And like, 
the thing that stood out to me from like the first, you know, bunch of chapters was that all of these bands, you know, that, that, you know, from the stimulators on that were sort of like seen as these Genesis bands, right? Yeah. Um, uh, like even worse or um, the mad or, you know, like all these bands featured members that were women, queer people of color, like good point. And then, and then bizarrely hardcore in the eighties, people are like, well, it's just a white person thing. Mm. And it was like, what, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah, that's fucking interesting too. Because I've always had this this weird, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like almost a, a hang up about wondering how I wound up so entrenched in this world that, truthfully, for so many years, just felt so white. And I mean, homophobic as well and homophobic and and straight, but like, but, but specifically white, because I feel like it took me years to even sort of like understand myself as a a person of color struggling in the world. Right. Like where I sort of like, and, and thinking about hardcore and being like, this was the hard question was this. Why is it that when I go to a show, I feel like such a, such a, such a minority, Right what is it about this community that attracted me, but doesn't attract people like me? Wow. Like, what is it that shuts the door on people like me from walking in and being yeah. like, yo, that's not for me. Yeah. And, and even though like every fucking show, you've got somebody screaming anti-racism and like, yeah. let's, you know, let's unite and all this stuff. Like, are we really are we really as inclusive as we're singing about? What are we doing that's yeah. making people feel like they're not welcome? It's a great, great point, man. It's a really great point. It's very interesting. Because <laughs> I feel like coming from D.C., which was very diverse at the shows. Yeah. I feel like New York had way less white skinheads at shows. Like you talked about earlier, there's a whole crew of different crews of people. That it felt very um, diverse, but like but at the same time, I'm a white guy saying that. So it's like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, I it was like there were people that were hanging out, right? Yeah. Like you know, when you talk about the like uh, black skinheads, like Rico, or like yeah, you know what Rico, I mean? Like yeah, it man. was like there were people hanging out, or like Paul Regard, uh, Phil Regard, um, or like um, you know, there were like, and obviously there were tons of Queens people that were hanging out. Like you know, as far as bands, we had Gingy, Chaka, Chuck Trace. Is an underdog, right? Like, uh, yeah, it's a good point. It, it 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 didn't feel like it's still there were people around, but I still very much felt like other. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that changed a little bit in New York. Like in the ni- early nineties, yeah. it felt like Queens and Brooklyn people really started like coming in and taking over a little bit. That's, yeah, that's true too. And even though there was a lot of violence at that time, like Fahrenheit four five one, yeah. Like I was still like Sergio. very, I was still kind of like, yo, this is this is cool. Like, <laughs> yeah, it got really crazy. Man. It got crazy. Interacting all these different venues. Yeah, it I mean, I remember scary, the, dude. I remember this show that I went to. Well, I actually didn't go to the show. This is maybe my fault, my bad, because I was trying to fucking rubberneck 
a potential fucking brawl. But basically, <laughs> I had heard it was, I, I don't know if you were at this show. It was at the marquee. It was Biohazard Burn. Um, it was a Super Bowl. It wasn't. Okay. It was just a show. And, but I, the word around town was that there was this whole Brooklyn Queens brawl that was going to happen. Wow. And I was, you know, and I'm like, oh, yo, like I at least want to check it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you, so <laughs> I'm going to rubberneck a brawl basically. And, uh, I'm waiting for the show to get out because that's when it's supposed to happen. And, uh, this dude, and to this day, I have no idea who this dude was. Never seen him before. Nothing like, comes up to me i'm hanging out with i don't know who i was with at that time uh it was just a friend and like he comes up to me and he just literally walks up and he's like yo brooklyn or queens oh and shit. i was like oh there's a there's a wrong answer here Holy shit. and then he he like i don't say anything i'm just looking at him and he goes again brooklyn or queens and then he lifts his shirt and he shows like he's got a gun holy shit and dude. i'm like and I just said, yo, I live on East 10th Street. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and he's scary, man. He sort of left me alone. I mean, obviously in my heart I wanted to be like, yo, Queens. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, That's scary. Yeah. I was at TV's at the last show at the Raw Deal or Killing Time show when the guy pulled out a gun in front. I was right there behind I was hiding behind Anthony, a guy. Oh shit. I was like, this is fucked, man. Yeah. Then I just started going on tour, sick of it all. I was never around. I just started touring, getting the fuck away from the city, and because I I didn't grow up around. I come I'm, I'm coming from Maryland to Rhode Island to D.C. I was always super posy. All my friends skated, all that shit. I had dreads. I thought I wasn't fucking. You had dreads. Yeah, I thought I was like oh, a Dogtown Albert, Albert <laughs> fantasy. Grew those shits out, and then um, then I moved to New York with Timmy Chunks, and then me all they go to CBGBs. I mean, all the I'm all by myself. They call me the. Hick from Maryland, call me redneck. <laughs> I, I lived in Maryland only fucking four years, everybody. Everything else was Boston, Rhode Island. And then I go there and it's just, fuck, man. And it's like, I'm not a tough guy. I was never into that shit. Then, then you meet all these people and they give you this tough New York love. They take you under their wing. Then I start my band and then they bring you in. And it's like all these fucking people that you've listened to most of your life are like, I'm going to go to New York and be part of the scene. It's just, it's, it's surreal, but a lot of these dudes come come from come from different backgrounds than I came from. You know, it's more of like a tougher city. But yeah, it was scary, man, at times being hanging out in there, man. I mean, when, so I'll ask you a question. So, like, when H two O started, I remember my my impression of you because you were like, I knew you'd been touring with Sick of It All yeah. and like all that stuff. And then I was like, it's oh, interesting. Like, he started this band, but it was very like. To me, I was like, this is an interesting sort of story because <laughs> this is a very sort of like, it felt like a very scrappy come up kind of band. Like you were yeah. like, you've, it, it didn't feel like you were coming out with this, like even necessarily fully realized thing. Like there was a lot of people in the band that I was like, oh, I don't know these dudes. Like, you know, and I was like, Eric Rice, Zero Tolerance. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did know Eric, but like still it was very, Rusty. it just felt, yeah, it just felt this, this kind of like scrappy kind of vibe where it was just like, yo, we're going to fucking do this. Like, but I'm wondering, yeah. like, I was always like, did you, did you feel that way? Or what did you feel? Like, were you just sort of like, I just want to fucking play a couple shows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we kind of got thrown into it because sick of it all wrote that riff to my love is real, which is that screamy song. And we jump on stage and do that as an encore or like before biohazard. It was with Tim Henson, Armand and Pete and me. That's what it was. Right. Isaac would play bass sometimes. Yeah. It was like kind of like this joke thing. And then like, I made a sticker like a water drop, and I was gonna be it was gonna be a straight edge pure 
band. And then they wrote a riff to Five Year Plan. And then Rusty joined the band and we started writing songs. And everything we listened to was melody. And I think people thought because I, I had a mustache, probably shaved head, <laughs> who I hung out with, who I wrote it for, how I looked. It was going to be like this tough guy shit. But I never, that was never my thing. So when I came out on the first seven inch on Equal Vision Records, a love song about Moon and Moon on the cover, they're like, what the right. f- People didn't know what to expect, I think. Yeah. Because I was trying to sing and had melody. Yeah, I, it was just, it just happened really fast, man, to be honest. I yeah. remember we had our first show in Queens. Like, Walter was there, sick of it all. Moon was dating some other guy she was going to marry, and she brought him. <laughs> and it was at this small bar in Queens, and there was this crazy security, and a big fight broke out after we played before Murphy's Law. And I remember me and Moon running down the street together with her boyfriend, jumping in cabs. Like, it was it was crazy, bro. Next show was with the Chromax at, at the Limelight. It just kind of happened like that. And then, like, my brother left his band out crowd. They joined the band. Then he was a real All good right. songwriter. Then we just, then we got signed. And it just, 27 years later, bro. Sick of it all. We're at Texas's first show, too. They were. <laughs> yeah. They were. Well, it was, uh, it, we did it at the Equal Vision Loft. Oh, yeah. That was which, great on 23rd or 26th Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a well, great that's, spot. I was living, I was still living there when okay. the H207 inch came out. Wow. And dude. like, then like, um, but we played in our living room. Uh, and it was great, yeah. Like those guys came out, and like Capo was there, and it was it was like it was we just basically threw a party, yeah. And uh, and that sh- yeah, that w- it was weird that show playing your first show in in your living room in Manhattan because most people, you gotta understand, it's a, it was a loft for yeah. people who don't understand. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't just an apartment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like yeah, I feel like H- I feel like for people, for some of the peers, like I was supposed to be just a goofy guy who break dance to fucking pull Lou out of the crowd or fixed his rat tail i'm just joking but i was just a guy like behind the scenes and like i started touring them like yo i started writing in my journal and, like i want to do this too I, I have something to say and then it just went from a joke to like a reality man it's yeah crazy man i i think about lou a lot because his so in, in the i would say it's him and mike judge in antimatter we had these conversations uh or these maybe diversions in the conversation where we talked about age and at the mm-hmm. time, we're talking like Lou was what I think twenty seven or twenty eight. Seems so old, bro. <laughs> and Mike, I think maybe was turning thirty or something. <laughs> yeah. And like at the time, we were just talking about like we were fucking one foot in the grave or something. Like it was like so true. And Lou, I remember specifically was just like, yo, I mean, this is all I've ever done. This is all I know. I don't know like what's what I'm gonna do next. Like I have nothing, you know. And it's like. So it's crazy to me to like, you know, 25 years later, like we're like, you know, I'm coming on this anniversary and I'm looking at these interviews and I'm like, I need to re-interview these people. That'd be so, that'd be so cool, man. <laughs> because Especially I feel, Mike too, man. Yeah. And, and, Love him. and I feel like it's really, I mean, Mike's story is definitely bizarre. Like I feel like, you know, even when I found him back then, like it was really like, it was like a mission impossible to find Mike judge at that point. Totally. And it was like, the only reason I managed to get him was Mark Ryan got, got in the mix and was able to sort of like be wow. like, yo, you should talk to him. Like you should do this, you know, like whatever. I love him. Cause he didn't want to do it. <laughs> I love his, his, how mysterious he was and off the grid and just nobody yeah. really knew, you know? Like, yeah. But, but this point about aging mm. in hardcore is so interesting to me because obviously I'm aging yeah, and there was no blueprint other than maybe everyone thought stigma was already 50. (laughs) Who's still killing it by the way. That's amazing. Yeah. He's, he's doing his thing. And it's like, 
he was maybe the per- the one person I feel like in the scene where everybody thought, oh, okay, that's the old guy or whatever. But yeah. like, he wasn't even that old. No. And 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 sort of like the way we talked about like Capo was like, oh, you know, like when I met him, it felt like he was like already a million years old. Like he yeah. was like, but he wasn't. And so now we're in fucking 2022. Yeah. And I don't know. You would think that we would have all quote unquote aged out, but like we're still doing it. No man. And like killing it too. Still jumping around. We was talking about that. Do you think that there's like a, like I, I talk about this all the time. Like I'm on tour Thursday right now. We're doing this 21 year full collapse thing. We're playing full collapse and you know, I'm like 21 years, you know, that's legal age. (laughs) That's an adult. Yeah. And, uh, like our kids actually like doing the math when they go to these shows and being like, how old are these dudes? I know. <laughs> or does it not matter? Or is it just, but I feel like it keeps us young, man. I feel like hardcore out of any other genre of music, it seems. Cause you see like some of the older rock dudes, how they look. Right. Obviously they have a lot more money to get things done to their faces, whatever. But I'm so like hardcore. I don't know. I just feel like it keeps us young. I don't know. It's so different. Seeing all of our peers age, all they see stigma, like I said, jumping around Roger, Right. Just went through cancer and I was on tour killing it. Like, just like, fuck. Right. Yeah. It's incredible, man. It's, I mean, there's something about it that I can't explain. It's just youthful. You know, like, and, and, you know, I don't know. Like, when people tell me stuff like, oh, you look like you haven't changed at all, you know, I make jokes about how, like, well, that's because I'm fucking gay without children and have, an <laughs> <laughs> and have no stress. <laughs> um, but there's other people that look, yeah, but I don't know. Keith Morris, dude, like mid sixties, bro. Yeah, that's wild. And, and Kevin Seconds, I saw him play recently. His voice was perfect. Yeah, he's in his sixties as well. Yeah, it's insane. I, I don't know. If it's it's some sort of something that's in our that stays in us. I don't know. It's something magical from this music, man. That stayed with us our whole lives. That like we use it in parenting, using our everyday life. I don't know. And then we get to still play that music that people care about. It's crazy, bro. And the different generations that have grown up with our bands and they're bringing their kids to the shows. Right. It's like, that's, I mean, that's wild. It's like, totally wild. <laughs> that's definitely the, the weirdest part. But you know, I, I feel very privileged that I've been in a, pres- in a position where, you know, like I remember somebody sent us like pictures of, uh, the wedding rings engraved. Ooh, you know, with Texas lyrics and things like that, where you're just like somehow like all these years you stay a part of these people's lives and it's meaningful. It's crazy, man. And I, I can't, I, I never, I never sort of, um, I I don't regret anything basically. Like I definitely have like such a, you know, um, we played This Is Hardcore this year. Yeah. And um, Leeway played. And, you know, Eddie's been going through his thing. Yes. And uh, I remember this one part. I was like, I literally teared up. It was like, he was just talking and he was like, you know, I've, I've fucked up a lot in my life. I've done a lot of fucking shitty things. I've fucked over a lot of people. Like, I mean, he was just like, it just felt like he was like in his feelings. Yeah. And then he goes, but you know, the one thing I did right was hardcore. 
Wow. It's <laughs> fucking beautiful, man. And I was just like, fuck. Like, I was like literally tearing up. Yeah. And, you know, real. and it's weird that like, you know, I, I kind of feel the same. Like same. we, we, when, when I was going through some shit or whenever I've gone through shit where like I need help, right? Like the people who were always there for me, like I have a lot of different sort of legs to my life and a yeah. lot of different social sort of um, groups that I'm a part of. But the hardcore kids were always the ones who truly came through. Yeah. Like there was a time where I was like, maybe it was seven years ago where I was really like, fucked. I was like, fuck, I need a job. I need money. Like I was like, yeah. and I'm like asking people from every level of my life of just like, yo, you got to help me. Like, you know, who's hiring, do you know, like what companies, blah, blah, blah. blah. And people were like, yeah, yeah, I'll reach out and all this stuff. No one did shit. And Keith Burkhart comes in and he's like, you're working with me. And I was like, well, what does that mean? He's just like, you're joining my real estate company. I'm going to start paying you right away. Wow. (laughs) And he's like, and at that point I was like a hundred grand in debt. I had student loans, credit card loans. I was completely, and he was like, you're going to pay that off. Trust me. And I did. That's incredible, man. And he just, he completely, you know, that to me was like a total like, yeah, this is it. Like, this is, I, these are the people that I can depend on, like, still. That's incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. What, what were you going to school for? Did you go later on in life, obviously? I did. I, I started uh, college when I was 33, and uh, I went in and got a bachelor's in English and adolescent education nice. and a master's in linguistics. And, uh, I did it in five years. I just wanted to be like in and out. That's why I accumulated debt. Yeah, of course. And then, uh, and then I spent the next five years teaching at a university. Um, That's great. What university? Brooklyn college. So it was very, I loved it, but unfortunately (laughs) living in New York city on a teacher's salary of any kind is, is, it's untenable. So And it started to show like I was becoming a shitty teacher <laughs> really? yeah, wow. because I was constantly preoccupied or trying to make money other ways or like, you know, taking too many classes in a semester, like where I'm like, okay, I'm teaching five classes. That's a lot. Yeah. Like, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot. And especially when you put it in grading, lesson planning, you know, creating materials. It's just like, yeah, maybe some people have a better system, but I was drowning in it. And I was like, I was drowning in it and I felt like I was just making enough money to get yeah. by. And so I, I feel bad. Like I'm always just like to some of my students who had me at that time, I apologize. <laughs> 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 I was stressed. Didn't anybody recognize you from? Texas? Yes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 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 It's, it happened twice. I think that's amazing. Man. Um, and, and <laughs> it was cool. It, but honestly, I think one of the things that I, I sort of feel the most, proud about was that I was when you teach in the humanities uh, English literature you know writing a lot of your personal life comes out because you're just you know this is what writing is about this is what literature is about it's about human living and human condition and like emotions and all these things and so I was very consciously like I want to be fully out in the classroom. I want to be, I want them to know that almost from day one. Okay. And I think that it's important because I was like, 
in order to teach, um, in order for someone to like take you seriously teaching, I do think that there needs to be this element of not vulnerability, but a sense of just being like, I'm going to be real with you yeah. because that's the only way I'm going to get real work from you. True. You know, and, and so over the years, I've had a lot of students that, you know, took that in different ways. Yeah. There were definitely queer kids who came up to me who were struggling with coming out. They were yeah. definitely like, all, you know, but I had, I remember I had a student, um, who was being abused by her husband and didn't know where to go to. And that was a little rough, but I was like, look, it's heavy. you know, she saw me as someone who was being real with her yeah. and she, for whatever reason, decided that that made me trustworthy enough. And I was like, I'm going to have to take this seriously. And I just said to her, look, I was like, you know, I'm going to, send you some resources. I don't ever want you to be in danger. And if you feel like you're in serious danger, you need to make the police report. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. that needs to be on the record. Like, you know, and it was crazy. Like, cause I'm like, I'm not tra a trained counselor. Mm -hmm. I, I sent her eventually to, uh, you know, a counselor and to a support group, um, in her area. And, yeah. but it was like, that was the first time I realized like, wow, like this is a responsibility mm -hmm. and it definitely, and it also kind of, again, unfortunately sort of like tainted the perception of, wow, this is a huge responsibility. Am I getting paid enough? Yeah. <laughs> like this is a lot on my, now this is affecting my, my psyche. Yeah. Like, because I'm like worried about this person and mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to help and it's like, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not, I'm not qualified too. to help, you know, yeah. like, so I, I just, I did my best. And in the end, um, at least the last that I'd heard, she was getting the help she need and she actually did make a police report. Oh, that's great. So man. That's amazing. I do feel good about that. But. Yeah. That's beautiful. Did, um, the misfits ever hit you up about the name or anything or no? Never. <laughs> really? Wow. Even like, yo, that's cool or nothing like that. Yeah. No. I mean, honestly. Do you expect, you, do you expect anything ever? Or? Um, you know, when we came out, they were sort of like a little dormant. That's right. I guess. Yeah. But like, I mean, I suppose that they, I mean, I'd be curious like, yeah. did they ever hear us? Did yeah. They? <laughs> totally. um, but it's never, ever come up. I mean, and honestly, like when we first had the name, like I was sort of opposed to it on the grounds that it was a Misfits mm. lyric. But I, I did a test. I did a test run. Okay. Specifically with, uh, with Jordan Cooper, Mark Ryan. I forget was one other person. Mark Ryan specifically because he's fucking New Jersey old school. Yeah. You know, like Misfits. And Jordan, because like I was like, you know, he seems like the right, you know, sort of like demographic. But the, the test was basically I'm going to tell them the name of the band yeah. and I want to see if their first reaction is like Misfits. And neither of them said that. Oh, wow. It was it was sort of just like. I didn't know either at the beginning either. Yeah. yeah. it's It's sort of one of those songs or one of those lyrics that you sort of just. It's in your head, but it's not. You're sort yeah. of, you know, at least, I mean, now it's in your head. Yeah. Because we've, you know, we made it. Totally. Uh, we, you know, amplified it. But at the time, Jordan and Mark were both just like, what is that? Yeah. 
And so when they said that, I was like, okay, we can use it as a name because it won't be the first thing that people think about necessarily at yeah. that time. No, it's a great name. Is it true the same day you guys signed your deal to Capital? Was it Capital? It was. You guys flew to Europe for a tour, then you, that was pretty much you figured out once you got there and played the show, this is the last tour? The other way around. Other we, way around. We were in Europe. Coming and home. We were going to come home to sign. The I contracts were ready. And, and I think that was when the, you know, camel's back broke. and you guys were killing at that at that point yeah it was a fucking great tour and it's was there a moment in texas recently like holy crap like this is like my life this is my career like we're really doing it yes um not like we made it but like no but we definitely got to a place where we were doing well enough that okay this this now feels like a career or at least the beginning of one. Yeah. And we definitely were getting enough sort of support from like very influential music industry figures that yeah. were basically like, this is going to happen. Yeah. But I think that in the end, that was what destroyed us because, well, for me, it destroyed me because I really was like, what you just said, basically. Yeah. This is my career. This is whatever. I felt like there was a weight that mentally I couldn't handle. Yeah. Meaning that, and this is very, very tied to coming out. Yeah. I did not think I could come out in Texas for the reason. Wow. So the idea of signing a contract and then continuing this for however many more years just seemed completely impossible to me. Mm. I was like, I would die literally. If the I whole did band this. knew you were though. No, not what? I. I never explicitly said. Damn. I think that you know, yeah, they they probably knew to some extent, but I ne at that point I had never explicitly told them. Wow, man. That's that's. I would say probably at that point the only person that knew was Rob Fish. Wow, that's like a lot of pressure and stuff to live for you all those years, man. It was, I mean, again, like that That's, at that time, and I, I talk about how like this was sort of um, confirmed to me when Jason from The Promise Ring came out, like, mm. because basically like at that time, the JTree message board blew the fuck up with the type of shit that I, I still can't even believe. I mean, it was All insane, yeah. super fucking hateful, I homophobic hate shit. So much, dude. And it got to a place where like, I told the guys at J tree, I was basically like, dude, your fucking message board is a cesspool of fucking homophobia right now. I was like, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but here's what I would do. Shut I was like, down, I would shut it down and replace it with an essay about homophobia, which I will write. That is incredible. And they did it. And they posted my wow. essay. And really? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And that was the end of the J Tree message board. But it was wow. really like, but when that happened, I was like, see, I knew it. You know, like, yeah. because people still now, they're like, well, I don't understand why well, you didn't come out. Like, it would have been fine. Like, such I, a different time. I don't think people understand. I just don't. I hated message boards so much, man. Yeah. That was like the beginning of the end, dude. Totally. <laughs> that was the beginning of, I can say any shitty thing. And feel no consequences. So negative, so bad, dude. Like, yeah. who are all these people that buy these records or are part of this world that we think's 
an open-minded <laughs> community. I, I always, I always laugh. It's like remember, get nostalgic and be like, remember the times when you can, when you used to talk shit and get your ass beat. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That was no consequences, man. None. <laughs> I mean, I have seen some cases where people talk shit online, and somebody gets approached in real life, and they deny. Oh, is this kid or just stuff like that? But right. Like, oh, it's the worst, man. <laughs> Are you on social media a lot or no? Uh, I mean, I'm on Instagram, which is. Most, I would say. I To me, Instagram is actually the way I use it and the people who sort of follow me there, I feel like it's a very positive place. Same, yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter a little bit, Twitter's but... Twitter's insane, bro. I, I get more depressed on Twitter, so I, yeah. don't, I don't go there a lot. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's... It's, yeah. Because that's really... I mean, Facebook is really where people go to be their worst selves. Mm. I'm not, I like, I have a Facebook profile, but I'm not on Facebook. I don't, Yeah. I kind of keep it there in case some rando needs to get in touch with me or something. But yeah. like, otherwise it's like, every time I look at it, I'm just like, wow, I hate feeling like all my friends suck. Uh, especially <laughs> the past couple of years, I mean, seeing a lot of people rise to the top, like showing yeah. the true colors and stuff. It's really fucking hurts my heart, man. It's really, really depressing. And so especially people from our world too, like you think, think a certain way and stuff like just yeah man it's interesting time for that yeah it's it's a good place to promote podcast and music and things you're doing but it's also you know is this a real negative do you let like negative comments or shit bother you do you ever get any anyway i Probably don't not. i don't know that i do yeah. i mean like you know i typically feel like you get what you put out into the world true and i think right now i kind of don't put out too much negative shit yeah so yeah at least I, I'm very conscious of it. And I've really like, I've made this a point like, cause I think, so one of the things about the internet in general is that it's such a place of anger. Yes. And I get that one of the things that got me into hardcore was that I was an angry kid. True. And so seeing that sort of like, oh, like hardcore kids come up, go on the internet to be angry. I'm not going to be like, what? That's shocking. Uh, <laughs> you know? <it's> true. <laughs> like it's true. I get that. But Again, evolution. Like, I'm not an angry kid anymore. Yeah. I was an angry kid because I felt powerless. I was an angry kid because I felt othered. I was an angry kid because I felt shamed. Kind of trapped in your body, too. It's Yeah. Like, all this shit, there was a lot of reasons to be angry. But at this point, it's sort of like that. I don't Again, this here's another fucking weird saying that I don't know where it comes from. But <laughs> I've, I heard it, and I was immediately like, yes, this. Uh, that that notion of anger just being is setting yourself on fire and expecting the other person to burn. Like, yeah, it's like, I don't want that anymore. And, and I had this realization, this, this is a uh, sort of relation to my Zen Buddhist practice, but like, um, I had this realization about anger and specifically like when you think about Buddhism, one of the sort of key tenets or ideas of Buddhism is this notion of impermanence and sort of, accepting things in the way that they are yeah um and dealing with the world in the way that it is because that's that's how to be radically present but so one of the things about impermanence is that when you meditate breathing is sort of like the embodiment of impermanence breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out mm-hmm. it's completely just like change change yeah. change over and over no two breaths are the same if you're not you know, faking like yeah. some people think they're supposed to go, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> you're just supposed to breathe just yeah. normal. Anyway, the 
The thing about anger and impermanence is that I realize that whenever I get viscerally angry, that feeling comes and it goes actually very quickly. The visceral, the visceral feeling of it, yeah. right? So from in order for me to stay angry, I have to work. I have to put the work in, right? Like nobody is not can maintain that high level of angriness or anger, like, you yeah. know, within, you know, for like 20 minutes straight. True. Right. Maybe three minutes, five minutes. Right. Yeah. But then after that, you've got to start fucking pouring the gasoline mentally, whatever. Sure. You got to make yourself fucking angry. Yeah. And I was doing that with so much shit. And I was like, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Just get angry, feel it, let it pass. Yeah. Don't like fucking that. pour the, the gas. <laughs> yeah. That's a big part of your life too, the breathing and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that was, I think like when I left the, the Krishna movement, like, there were things about it that I still felt were, even though like I wasn't a theist, mm -hmm. um, the meditation aspects of it, I think were always things that I, uh, that I felt were helpful and, and sort still of like, do. yeah. And, and so at some point several years ago, I started like, well, I don't know, there's gotta be like secular meditation that, that seems interesting. And that was actually, interestingly enough, it, when you're a Hare Krishna, they tell you that Buddha is, uh, the, I think it was like the ninth incarnation of Krishna. Okay. And they say that Buddha's goal was to come here to, uh, what was it? It was like, um, it was almost like a bridge. So he basically came during a degraded period of time when people started eating meat again. And so mm -hmm. like he started teaching compassion, but he was also teaching imper uh, impersonalism, which is sort of separate from like Krishna philosophy, which okay. is a personalist philosophy. Um, but he did that because the, the only thing he needed to do was to get people to stop eating animals. So that's the sort of Krishna version. So I always thought Buddha was like a deity and, <laughs> and I just never interrogated that, that belief because that was yeah. sort of like what I was taught from an early age. And then like several years ago, I'm like reading about Buddhism. I was like, Oh, actually he's not a deity. Like Buddha's just a dude. <laughs> he's just a dude. And he was like, figured some things out and shared them with people and was like, you can be that dude too. That's awesome. <laughs> that, that's awesome. I never thought about it like that actually. Yeah. And, Just and, dude. and so that was, uh, that, that was sort of like, I was like, okay, like I can, I can roll with this. What is, what's he teaching? And, uh, and now is, then I sort of like started looking at different, um, types of Buddhism, um, and, you know, Theravad was like sort of like the original entry, but then I started reading more about Zen and then I found a Zen teacher that I really related to. And then it's cool working with him for several years. It's crazy. How hardcore is like such a homophobic, violent, macho, crazy place, but you, you managed to stay safe and feel part of that world. You know what I mean? In a sense, when there's so many odds against you, we're not really, people don't really knowing what you, really were inside you know what i mean yeah well i mean i'll be honest i still feel semi-threatened in hardcore spaces really even 2022 it's so weird but also that's probably like something from back then though no? it could be it could be it's like trauma it's 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 hard to sort of let go of those feelings like i still remember i, I still remember the fear of like walking out of the sixth train down bleaker street 
and, yeah. <laughs> and and walking towards the Bowery and being like, is today the day I get my ass kicked? <laughs> you know, like yeah. that kind of feeling. And it wasn't even necessarily that I was worried about getting my ass kicked for being gay or anything like that. But, you know, there was always that element, right? You were sort of just like, it's wild. Shit yeah. is wild in here. Yeah. Anything can happen, right? Yeah. Um, but there's so many also, like, I feel like, and I don't know, like, how you resolve this because i feel like h2o is a little bit of um like a bridge band between like different types of hardcore scenes that exist right now but like when i go to like a black and blue bowl i'm still sort of like (laughs) (laughs) you know looking over my shoulder like you know i feel like there's a little bit of a wilder element where i'm sort of like i don't know if these people know or care who i am like i remember being like and you probably know this too. Like, so like in the eighties and even early nineties, right? Like you'd, you'd have people who like, maybe they'd say something that's out of pocket or something, but people would be like, yo, but that dude's been around. Mm. That's that dude's been going to shows for like eight years. (laughs) Right. Right. Because it's sort of like, there's this element that's of, just him or he's just, yeah. there's, well, there was like, there was still like a, a hierarchy of seniority. True. Like that sort of mattered. Like if somebody had been going to shows in 1981, you weren't going to be telling that person what is True. or isn't hardcore. Yeah. Right. Like there was a respect that you were like, you know what, dude, you're like my older brother, like whatever it is, yeah. like I'm going to listen to your shit. Um, yeah. Fast forward to now when a lot of those old cats are on social media acting out. Right. <laughs> that respect is gone. I think it is not even like that. Now it's no. like, nah, dude. But not, but it's, it, it doesn't feel like that at all. Like I, you know, it's weird because to me that that sort of respect and sort of like hierarchy and respect doesn't necessarily mean like I'm going to listen to everything you say no, and, no, and, no, no, and no. I'm going to like cosign. No, <laughs> but it, it means that like, at least you're going to like, I'm going to listen. Yeah. Right. And I feel like it's OG now. Exactly. And I feel like now there's a sense of like, um, you know, it's like I went to my first show in December of 1986. It's like, I don't think that means anything to anyone. That's <laughs> oh, pretty freaking cool, though, man. It's cool, but you it's know, pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, to another thing I want to ask you about too, you get hit by a truck. I did. <laughs> was that in Chicago? Uh, Oakland. And you were on tour? No, I was living there. So, so was it like a, what kind of truck was it? A uh, tow truck. So it was, and actually, so bizarrely, we're we're you like in as, the hospital too, right? For two months, yeah. What the so this is actually the moon told me to bring this one up. She goes, Do you know, maybe we get hit by a truck. <laughs> so, this actually happened almost 19 years ago, exactly. Oh, shit. to the day, like from where we sit right now. Um, next year will be the 20th anniversary, so I'll do something special. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, I was living in Oakland and uh, Why were you in Oakland, um. <laughs> This is still the thorn on my side. My my one regret in life. <laughs> my one regret in life. Was, okay, here's your regrets. That's one of the questions. Was leaving Chicago. Okay. Um, and and specifically why I left Chicago. I left Chicago in the year 2000, and at the time, I had this fucking amazing life. I had this sick apartment. I had like, I had jobs that didn't feel like jobs like so i was sort of working but i was basically just living my life every day yeah and you were out 
I was out. About. I was DJing. I was like, I had great friends. Everything was great. And therein lies the rub. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a fucking masochist, apparently. And I was like, it's too easy to live here. I need some struggle. <laughs> and I just was like, I'm moving. So I, I moved to Oakland because uh, basically far broken up. And I, I said, you know, Jonah Matrang and I had started like sending each other tapes of music and wow. we were like, all right, let's start a band. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to go there and struggle. And so I moved there and I struggled and <laughs> totally regret it. Um, was there a big gay community there too? Oh, well in San Francisco, so, obviously. Course, yeah. 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 So, um, but you know, honestly, like at that point I was very, you know, I was engaged with, uh, you know, I knew an original. I had, yep. um, I was running a record label, like house music. I was DJing. So cool. I was doing a lot of shit. So I was like out and about. Um, and and so, so interestingly enough, the night before this happened um, was the night I met Thursday. It was uh, they were playing at the Warfield with wow. Thrice and Coheed and Cambria. Steve Reddy was out with Coheed and Cambria, nice. so I went out to go see Steve Reddy. Shout Steve Reddy, one of the greatest human beings that come from hardcore. 100%. And so I went to go see Steve. I'm hanging out with him, and uh, Steve Padula from Thursday comes up to me, and he's like, yo, do you remember me? And I was like, not at all. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, we, we actually sort of were pen pals back in the day, like, we traded video. Like he sent me, I remember he sent me a video of Embrace and Race of Spring. Wow. And I maybe sent him something stupider. <laughs> but um but we were sort of yeah, like he wrote me from the zine and like and I was like, Oh, I do remember you like, what's up? Like, what are you doing here? And he was like, I'm in Thursday. And I was like, Crazy. Like and at this point Thursday was like World of the Time era. It was like Yeah, you know, they were on the cover of spin and it's Big, like, man. Are they the next U two? You know, it was like huge. Crazy. And so I was like, Wow, that's amazing. So I met all the dudes in the band and uh and then I went home, woke up the next day, and I had just moved, so I was going to pick up my bike, which I had left behind. And I was crossing the street and a tow truck just ran into me. Like, according to the police report, it was something like 25 miles an hour, which wow. doesn't sound like a lot, but apparently it is when you're walking down the street. And plus the tow trucks are <laughs> fucking head, yeah. Right, huge. right. And so I, you know, I got hit. Um, I, I kind of gauged for my injuries that I maybe lifted my hand up a little bit when I saw it coming and it hit my ribs but it didn't break my ribs. Interestingly, it sort of bruised my ribs, but it broke my pelvis in two places. And then I broke my wrist. But the worst part was, um, you know, I landed on my skull and I had a traumatic brain injury and there was cranial bleeding. Jesus. And so I was unconscious for three days while they were trying to figure out what to do because generally here. So here's my neurology fucking you knocked lesson. Up three days. Yeah. Wow. So here, my neurology lesson is, is this, cause I didn't know this. So when there's blood in the skull that starts applying pressure to your brain, it can potentially break the liner that protects your brain from blood. Wow. And apparently if blood hits your brain, instant corrosive death. Jesus. So as the, the blood is sort of piling in my skull, they're sitting there like, okay, what are we going to do? The options are blood thinners or drill a hole into your skull. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so they were on the verge of drilling a hole into my skull, but then the blood thinner started working and it was able to resolve 
without any uh, drills. Wow. <laughs> That's fucking scary. Man. And then I wake up, you know, three days later, I have no fucking idea. And I still, I have no personal memory of, of the accident. That's one of the things that your brain does to protect you from yes, trauma. <laughs> trauma. Yeah. Um, but I did read the police report and, um, and that was quite a fucking read. I was very, it was thrilling actually <laughs> because there were a lot of witnesses. It was in the middle of the day. Wow. And, um, and people were like, he, so apparently after I'd been hit and landed and all this stuff, like I somehow with a broken pelvis stood up and started cursing the guy out. <laughs> really? You know, I'm just, I, I, I don't know. And it said with blood running down his face, he starts cursing him out and then just, you know, falls on the floor again. Holy shit. Um, It'd be sick if there was a video of that. I wish. <laughs> I would have been just, so just sick. Just to see you stand up like that, like fucking. I'm sure that he, the tow truck driver must have been fucking horrified. Like, yeah, man. I can't even, it must have been some like walking dead shit. Like, I don't even know. <sighs> but, um, but yeah, so like that, that goes down. And what was crazy too was that I was literally just on the verge. Like my career as a DJ was really happening. Yeah. And I had just booked my first tour in Spain and I was what? so excited. And all I could think about as soon as I, like literally as soon as I woke up, the first thing I said was like, I got to be in Spain in a week. Yeah. And they were like, you're not going to be in Spain in a week. <sighs> and I was like, no. <laughs> so you never got to go there and DJ? No. And then what happened was the traumatic brain injury left me with like a migraine headache that lasted a year. A year? It was an entire year. It was so, I cannot even explain to you. I grew up with migraines, so I have this contentious relationship with them already. But to wake up every morning with that pounding in your temple is like a fucking hell that I can't, I, I can't, yeah, I, I can't even describe. And the worst part is like, after, you know, when you're in it for a year, you're just like, is Are this ever going to, gonna, no, no yeah, never. Yeah, you're like, is this, I just spent all my time in bed just like trying to forget. Are you going to see specialists about it all the time and trying to figure it out? I went to a neurologist, but there was nothing that they could do. They were like, this is just sort of like part of the healing process. Damn, dude. But there was points where it was like, it felt like, I mean, again, I guess I've had a few suicidal points in my life. This was definitely one of them yeah, because I was, I was yeah. just like, if this is how I live my life, I can't live like, like this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's crazy also to say like one morning I woke up and it wasn't there. That's crazy too. And that felt like I can't, I mean, Oh fuck! I, just gone. <laughs> yeah, it just Shut felt off. like it. It felt like the best sex you've ever had, or something. Like it was yeah. just like almost like oh my god, like total euphoria. Yeah. Um, both physical and mental euphoria. Um, but but yeah, it was a year, and so during that year, um, everything was on pause. Like I couldn't DJ. I DJed Damn. once that year, trying to sort of like, I was just trying to like, I don't know test myself i guess yeah it's like, brutal but man. like i came home completely just like fuck i can't do that anymore and um so then i yeah i didn't play music i didn't do anything i just i literally only watched law and order <laughs> for an entire it. year law and order law and order svu law and order criminal intent that was it it was always on tv and i just always watched it and that was the only way i got through it what year was this 2000 so it was october 2003 when it when it happened and then i came out of the hospital in january 
It's pr- that's insane, man. Yeah. I remember hearing about it back then. I was like, holy shit, the moon told me about it. I think, yeah. It's crazy, man. I mean, it was... I will say this. When... I also couldn't walk for six months <laughs> because Jesus. my my pelvis was broken. Were you There's, living by yourself at the time? You had somebody. I had a roommate, but Rob Fish took me in and oh, and sort of like took me like basically took care of me. Oh, that's great. Man. Um, until I could sort of get back on my feet. Yeah. And uh, and that that period of time, I'll say like, it's it's a privilege. I mean, this is a weird thing to say, <laughs> but it's a privilege to have six months to just lay in bed. Yeah. And to think about your life Mm -hmm. because like everything that's happened since is a result of that time and me really sort of like putting everything I am and everything I thought I believed to the fire yeah and being like what here is extra what here is not applicable anymore you know what here is just some old facet of my personality that that was maybe a vestige of the closet what you know like and and i was fucking brutal it was like a total house cleaning what people are not adding value to my life you know what people are actually fucking hurting me yeah you know like that type of stuff was like very much on the table and you know and that's really what led to that conversation that i had with my mom like it was basically like she's still fucking hurting my life yeah i still feel like i am acting out to spite her even though she doesn't even know what i'm doing yeah <laughs> that's fucking powerful yeah it's like it's crazy that, that we 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 fucking do this stuff where it's like we think we're spiting these people <laughs> they don't even know yeah, they don't even, yeah there's not you're just spiting yourself it's just it's insane you're literally hurting yourself thinking you're hurting other people and it's like, I couldn't, I was like, I can't do this anymore. That was when I officially sort of like, was like, yeah, I can't even like pretend to be a Hare Krishna. Like I'm like, I'm an atheist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of a deal breaker. And, and so all these things sort of came to a place where I could crystallize a clear picture of what I wanted mm-hmm. in my life that I think honestly, like, it's a blueprint that I'm still sort of like working through. Yeah. You feel like you're in a good place now in your life? Mostly. But I think, you know, it's tough. Like when you put on, and actually this is perfect for you. When you put on the face of positivity, (laughs) (laughs) it's really easy for people to think that you're just like, you figured it out. Yeah. And you're, I always like to say I, I definitely didn't figure it out. I'm not perfect. I don't wake up every day and skip to my backyard. Life's great. Everything's <laughs> wonderful. Like a tampon commercial. Like fucking stay free. But no, I mean it's a struggle. Obviously, but I, I've always tried. I've always been like that. Look to the positive. Always. I don't know. I always see the best in people, which may be like a, a bad thing of myself. My wife says you always think think everybody's good. The whole world's not good. Right. I don't know. Right. I mean, so I think that that's the the thing for me is that like. People tend to frame my story and the different aspects of my story as a story where I've overcome adversity mm-hmm. or I've fought through to the other side. <laughs> and and I'm like, I fucking hate those stories yeah. because they are not true. Mm-hmm. It's not like I came to the other side and it's like the end. No, I still got fucking, I don't even know how many lives, uh, lives left to live. Like I'm yeah. like, you know, I didn't think I would live this long, to be honest. So like, 
the story's not over. It's not over. And I'm still fucking up. <laughs> still learning. I'm All still that. learning. I'm still suffering. I'm still dealing with trauma. I'm still like trying to check my actions and be like, are you just being reactionary or are your movements deliberate? Are you doing things because they're the right thing for you? Or are you still spiting other people? Yeah. Like what, what are you doing? How are you living? This is every fucking day of my life. I'm not on the other side and I'm still in the shit basically. <laughs> you think, you think, I think closure with your brother or somebody is really important, man. I'm not a therapist, but that's like one of the last people you can really talk to. It's yeah. I mean, you know, I've definitely thought about it a lot and over many years, but there's a sense of, I think that I've thought about this too. The, the whole concept of closure Mm. Again, it sort of implies that there's an end. True. And I'm not really sure that there will be an end. How about answers? Answers are interesting, but to what end? So, like, is that answer really going to improve my life in some sort of way? I, I, if I thought so, I probably would have reached out already. Yeah. But I feel like that answer might just make me angry. That yeah. answer might, like, and what am I going to do? Who do I direct that anger towards? It's, it's like, I feel like maybe closure is an internal project, not, it's not contingent on doing something. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's contingent on saying this happened. This is my life as it is. How do I work with that? Yeah. Moving forward. Yeah. Because it's like, and that's, and that's how I've tried to sort of like you know, especially with the abuse part, I think that that's a really difficult sort of situation to be in, especially because, you know, growing up, I remember like in the eighties, there was a lot of, um, focus on, you know, sexual abuse. Yeah. That was like the big boogeyman, you know, but I always, I always think about that episode of good times with Janet Jackson. I remember that I think, where, yeah. where Penny is being abused by her, uh, her mother. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, the, they find out and, you know, it's like this whole thing, but it was like, that was the only ep very special episode on TV that I could remember that dealt with child physical abuse, violent physical abuse. Yeah. And that to me, I'll never forget that episode because it was like, I, I, I felt seen, right? Like yeah. it was like, wow, this is, this yeah. is other people. But I feel like, you know. I've always struggled with it because I don't think that people take it as seriously as they do child sexual abuse. And I think that that sucks because it leaves a lot of children not knowing where to go or a lot of children staying in the ambiguity of, well, everybody gets spanked yeah, or everybody, you know, like gets something happens where the parent freaks out and hits the kid or something, you yeah. know, like, and for a long time, like, that's what I thought. I just thought, yeah, well, everybody I know. Normal. Yeah, you know, that's what I thought. But again, you get to that place where you realize, like, no, actually, the severity and quantity and, like, you know, the amount of times that I'm getting completely fucking destroyed here yeah. is not normal and yeah. should never be normal. And... There was, I, it, it definitely felt like there was no one there to speak for me. 
Yeah. And so that's something that I feel on that's, that's like another part of my life that I would say is very unresolved. Right. Like, because you, you are the first person who has to sort of accept what happened to you. And that took me ages. Yeah. Like if you had asked me when I was 25, I would have been like, Oh, you know, my parents hit me, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. Right. But meanwhile, it's like, no, I realized like, fuck. Like now when I realize when I think about the last time my mom tried to beat me, I was 12 and I punched her. Wow. And I was like, I was surprised, but I was also like at the stage where I was like almost as tall as she was. And I was yeah. kind of like, okay. Yeah. If we're going to do this, let's do this. <laughs> like it was yeah. really just, and I remember she looked at me and she was just like, I can't believe you hit your own mother. And I was like, you have been fucking beating the shit out of me my yeah. entire life. Yeah. I was like, we're just now at this place where this is not going to happen anymore. And if it does, I'm going to fight back. Damn. So get ready. <laughs> and she never hit, she never touched me again. Really? Yeah, that was that. Wow, dude. So it was like, on one hand, it's like, look, that sounds fucking horrible, but I at least stopped it. Yeah. And like, I'm lucky I stopped it. I don't know, like, you know, a crazier mom might've escalated shit and it could have gotten crazy. Yeah. But, you know, it, this is all stuff that like I think about and I live with every day. Like, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want people to ever think that I'm just like, you know, telling these stories because like, you know, they put me in some sort of sympathetic light or some shit like yeah. that. Like it's, I'm telling these stories because literally this is what's on my mind every yeah. day still. Wow. 48 years old. And I'm still thinking about what happened to me when I was eight, you know? And yeah. it's like, I can't, is there ever going to be closure for that? I don't think so. I don't think there can yeah, be all the therapy in the world. Can't yeah. no, I've done it. I've done all the therapy in the world <laughs> all kinds too, yeah. at best. My therapists are like, you should be way more fucked up than you are. Really? <laughs> They've literally said that more than one. Are you married now? Or have a partner? I have a partner. We've been together for 16 years, but we're not married. Would you want to have a kid? Um, you know, I thought at one point in my life that I wanted one, but he was never that keen on it. And, truthfully I don't mind not getting yeah. not doing it because like I do feel like it's a it's a kind of pressure that my psyche would not withstand because I'm sort of an obsessive person okay and even when I had my dog Bozy uh I was like a helicopter parent <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. I think I would drive a kid miserable okay <laughs> <laughs> I think John on the other hand would be an amazing dad, but mm -hmm. uh I would be the fucking I would be a problem. Um, <laughs> are you uh optimist optimist or pessimist? Um I I think that most people would say that I'm an optimist, but mostly in the sense that I like that I I think I'm more of a pragmatist. I I very I very much just feel like it's important to just look at something um for what it is and and just re be realistic about it and be like, okay, yeah. so this is the situation, right? Like, are we going to fucking freak out about it and talk about all the catastrophes or are we going to just fix it? Yeah. 
I like that. I want to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was like your last, what's like the last real job you had? Real estate. That was the last one. Yeah. And you might go back to that. Uh, after Thursday. It's tough, man. Um, <laughs> real estate's like, here's what I, here's what I found, unfortunately, in my life is that, uh, I can be really good at things that I don't really love. And, um, I was in the best position of doing real estate. Uh, I was working with a small group of people that I really loved. And, uh, you know, my quote unquote boss was fucking Keith from cause for alarm. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. Uh, I mean, he's amazing and I loved working with him and I think he loved working with me, (laughs) but, um, but it was, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm having, a thing right now where it's very much like, I just want to wake up and like feel like I'm doing something that like really matters to someone. Yeah. And yes, it's like I was helping people with real estate, especially first time buyers. And music and like, has helped people. But music is something that like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it doesn't have to be music, but music is certainly something that falls in that place. Totally. You can't do something for 30 years and have people be like, you fucking saved my life and not take that seriously. It's true. So, you know, that's, that's, Speaking that's my main thing right now. It's just like, whatever I do next, like, I just want to feel like I'm doing something that matters to people. Yeah. Do you still, you still live on Biggie Small Street? I do. <laughs> this is where Christopher Wallace actually lived with his yeah. mom? Yeah, across the street. Wow. Obviously, she's not there no more. No. <laughs> and that apartment building is now like a fucking co-op. Really? With, yeah. So. so were you there when it was apartment or no? It, I, I'm not sure. I first moved to that block in 2005, I want to say. Wow. So but what's the street called? St. James Place. But the, now the, so that now they've changed it to Christopher Wallace Way. Wow, but man, that's so cool. It's still like the overarching St. James Place. I used to live further on St. James Place across the street from the apartment complex where Lil' Kim grew up. Wow. And, and, then, uh, and then I moved closer to Biggie's house. Uh, were you a Biggie fan? <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I mean, I love hip hop. I still have, I've always been, that's never left my DNA. That's like, yeah. uh, and even like I talk to people about like guitar and you know, I've, I've, I've told you like my, my first instrument was drums. Mm-hmm. I couldn't keep playing drums cause I lived in New York and like people don't want to hear that shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But so I started playing guitar, but I still feel like I play guitar like a drummer. Okay. And like, the rhythm, and it's one of the reasons why, like, I still love that era of hip hop because I feel like the beats are just—they're more driving Ooh. and sort of like you know, trap is all about like that sort of like low slung, yeah, laid back kind of beat where like everything's—it's more almost resting on the hi hat, yeah, than it is on the kick and the snare. Whereas like the beats of the '90s, incredible man, it was just way more like just pumping and driving and sort of like it had that energy that I still sort of crave. Yeah. What did you, what were some of your favorite hip hop groups in the nineties? Uh, I mean, you know, like I, I mean, it's hard to, to fucking discriminate from like the EPMDs and like, yes. you know, all that shit. Thanks like, are. yeah. Like it's like basically New York mob deep, like shit like that. <laughs> like that was like, I, know, man. I, I actually mob deep is a fucking great example of a record where it's like, you can walk down any street in New York and feel like, yeah. yeah 100%. <laughs> Such a crazy soundtrack, man. For yeah. Just listening to that, it makes you feel like, okay, like 
I'm, I'm a survivor. I'm yeah, that's <laughs> so true. Do you like Daylight and Tribe and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean Daylight came out when I was living in Massapequa, and they were from Amityville, which was right next door. Yeah, um, so, so cool. So they were like a huge, huge thing. Public Enemy. That was also like a, they were Long Island at that time, that's right? Too. So yeah, uh, Buster Rhymes from Long Island. He was the New School from Long Island. Rock Hammond's from Long Island. We were actually just, we were watching MTV Classic on the bus the other day. It was just like nonstop Busta. <laughs> it's incredible though. I just saw him perform Wu-Tang. It was incredible. I, I was actually saying when we were watching, I was like, Busta has one of those things where it's like, I don't know that I love him as a rhymer, mm. right? Like I never think performer. of like, he's a performer, but also the tone of his voice yeah. is the thing that I want to hear. It's incredible, dude. It's like, I can't even like, explain what it is about it but it's just like when i hear it i want to hear more of it yeah i can't possibly tell you a busta fucking couplet where i'm like that's sick yeah like you know (laughs) (laughs) but i don't care i'm sort of like i just want to hear him say it yeah and listen to hip-hop too is is a lot of a lot of homophobia as well still especially (laughs) back then yeah i love little nas x man yeah i think he's gangster as fuck he's punk rock as fuck like I, so incredible, especially now. Like speaking of 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 sort of things that make me fucking tear up, I literally cried the morning I listened to his album when it came out. Oh wow, that's amazing, man! Because I was really just like, I mean, I don't know, like I was just listening to it, and it was like, I just sort of loved the way his queerness was just sort of folded into what he did in a very yeah. non contrived way. Like he knew when he was trying to fucking poke the tiger. And then he also knew when he was just trying to express something. Yeah. That was real to him. And, and just hearing that shit was just like, and, and not just hearing it, but knowing that this was being validated by millions of people. It was a very sort of like emotional thing for me. Like, cause it's like, there have been queer hip hip hop artists, like, you know, over the last, you know, 40 years. Yeah. But, they're marginalized largely hundred percent. They're doing their thing in their underground scenes and like, you know, whatever. Like, I think, you know, there is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard cakes to killer, no, but he's this Brooklyn guy. He was actually on for a second. He was on that. Uh, fuck. What was the name of that? It was an HBO max, uh, like rap competition show. Oh really? Yeah. And he, he went on for a minute, but they didn't get it because he's very, he's almost like, I don't know if you know this word, banji. <laughs> banji is like comes from the ballroom scene. Okay. Um, so ballroom is a predominantly black and Latino sort of underground culture, um, very trans inclusive. Um, it's where voguing began. Oh, and that's like okay, okay. so and so there's also this style of emceeing in ballroom that's very just like because ballroom beats are a little different than any other kind of beat. It's more like clack, 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 clack. You know, it's like, okay. it's very like, and so the the cadence that you need to fucking rhyme to those beats are just like, they're not like what you hear in like mainstream hip hop. Okay. And Cakes Tequila definitely, he brings, that's the sort of flow that he's bringing, even to like, you know, quote unquote, regular hip hop beats yeah. that aren't like ballroom beats. Um, and I don't think they understood it. But they definitely understood his fucking swag because he was just coming in and a lot of his rhymes were about how he's going to take your man. And like, (laughs) (laughs) but he comes in with this like real reality and just like, I love 
his delivery, everything about him. He's just super confident. And now it's like he raps over, you know, he's got like hip hop tracks. He's got, he raps over house tracks. Oh, that's cool. Raps over ballroom tracks. But like his shit's really, really good. And he, and Takes he's the killer. Yeah. And he's a real lyricist to me, which okay. I think is something that also like, I feel like it's, it's been lost a little bit. Mm. Like when we talk about like the rock hymns of the world and yeah. like shit like that, like real lyricists, people yeah. who are just like, you hear those couplets or something and you're like, damn, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I've, I've only ever been to one like legitimate hip hop uh, studio session, recording session. When that was? It was in, um, fuck, this must have been like 96 maybe. And it was, uh, so Zach De La Rocha was in New York. Wow. And he was like, calls me up and he's like, yo, um, I'm doing a track tomorrow with KRS-One. Damn. <laughs> he's like, do you want to come? And I was like, dude, are you fucking serious? That like, yes. Amazing, man. So we go to the studio and so it turns out, um, and there's like, there's probably like 10 people in the studio. It's very like, you know, when you watch VH1 yeah. and like there's 10 people in the studio going, oh shit, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it was like that. So there was a producer, a bunch of other people I didn't know. There was this guy, Last Emperor, who comes from like the raucous records kind of world okay. at that time. And he was also going to be on the record. And then Zach and Karis won. So producer comes in and they're like, he's like, yo, 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 fucking let's do this shit. They're like, who's, who's up first? Who's going to do it first? And last emperor's like, yo, I'm up. I'll do this. So he goes <laughs> in and, and Zach and I had never heard last emperor before. So we were, didn't know what to expect. He comes in fucking wordplay lyricism, like one take, like wow. just fucking does his verse killer. Like he, then he's like, all right, all right, I'm gonna do some doubles now. Goes in, does his doubles. Then he's like, all right, all right, I got some sound effects. Goes in, does some sound effects. We're sitting there like, holy shit, this guy is fucking real. Like, mm -hmm. it was so sick. Then all of a sudden, I know our door opens. It's like a fucking movie. Karis one, fucking nine feet tall. He's a big dude. <laughs> He's a big dude. Walks in. He, he walks in and acknowledges everyone in the room. Like, walks in, shakes everyone's hand. What's up? What's up? What's up? Cool. What's up? What's up? Goes through the whole room and then goes straight into the booth. <laughs> does his shit. One take does his doubles like and you know his fucking voice is so massive it is man. that when he just like starts spitting it's like everybody's just like fuck he just owns the room yeah and it's one of those it, again like the reason i was bringing this up was because it's um i was talking about those couplets where everyone in the room is like oh shit you yeah, know yeah, that's yeah. what the whole fucking session yeah. was like and every time somebody said a singer it was just like damn you know so, <laughs> and it was so much fucking fun but it was hilarious because at the end of all that zach goes up zach's supposed to go up and he literally is like yo i'm gonna come back <laughs> really and he, you guys left he wound up rescheduling because he was just like yo that was too intense like those wow. two dudes like just fucking came in with fire like I gotta fucking rewrite my verse. <laughs> so that song's probably out. It came out it's out that. now. It's called CIA Criminals in Action. Wow, dude, that's crazy. Yeah, it's on Spotify still, but it's like it's it's an, it's a great song. It was really funny though. I'll, I will say this it's was that uh, moment, there's a part in the chorus where KRS One goes, he names everybody in the song. And he's like Last Emperor KRS One and Big Zach. And I remember we were leaving, and Zach was like. Yo, how do you tell KRS-One you don't want to be Big Zach? 
<laughs> Holy shit. But anyway, it was, that is amazing. It was a fucking great. great yeah, I just saw day. you went to see them play too, right? I Rage? did, yeah. It looked amazing, man. They were fucking great. I want to see it out here when it comes through. It didn't come through proper LA, but. They canceled it. Yeah, with Run the Jewels it, is on there too. It's, yeah. all, it's all done. Because of his leg, right? Or something. Yeah. yeah. Damn. He really, really fucked up his leg. And like, he was like, I talked to him a little bit about it. And you've been he, in touch this whole time, right? No, actually, we've we've lost touch um, over time. But um, you know, like I, it's been years since I saw him, so it was like really fucking sweet to reconnect. That's cool, man. And um, and you know, he was just saying he was like, yeah, it was like I, you know, we've talked about aging and hardcore. Yeah, this is sort of the same situation because <laughs> I was saying to you before we started recording, like I feel like I've been injuring my fucking body nonstop for the last year and a half. Yeah. Um, and there's sort of like you know, there's a point where it's like you kind of just can't have shame about it. Your body is your body. Yeah. Your body's going to age. Totally. It gets hurt easier. It heals harder. It's just what it is. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, he, when he told me the story and he was just like, yeah, he's like, I was, um, you know, he's like, I wasn't doing anything that I'd never done before. Yeah. But like, I, I, I like heard slash felt this pop and I thought that maybe I kicked something on the stage. Yeah. Cause I'd heard it, you know, yeah. and I looked around and I was like, fuck, there's, there's nothing for me to kick. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, that's when it hit me. And I was just like, oh shit, like I got to fucking go, you know, lean on something or whatever. Yeah. Like, and I think the rest of that show, he like sat on a side fill or something. Is but he like, 50? He's got to be up there, man. Yeah. He's in his fifties. Wow. Yeah. It looks great. That one sounds great. And- yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, like, then I saw them play, you know, in Madison Square Garden, and it was like, he's just, like, sitting on a box, and he was still just, like, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. Still has... The crowds are going crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was like, there's something about that. There aren't really that many... Like, remember, like, I've talked about this before, where I said how, like, there used to be these types of front men that, like... You just you couldn't take your eyes off of yeah. you know you know the blood clots of the world or like yeah. you know just people that were just like HR and like you know yeah. you're just like fuck you know I really feel like Zach was one of the last greats that like you see him and it's just like I can't take my eyes off of him I know him I know you, you know what I mean yeah, yeah like and it's just like but when he's on stage it's like he's a superhero yeah it's true and it's it's That's fucking a great point it's it's crazy it's like that charisma or that. I don't even know what it is. It's just that that fucking thing. Or that, you, yeah. You can't create it. Yeah. I, I want to see them. I haven't seen them since they first were coming out. I think it was like Rage Against the Machine, House of Pain or something. Oh, wow. Thing. Yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> at the Academy. Jeez. It's been a long time, man, though, for sure. Um, so now you're on tour with Thursday. Yeah. And you have a couple more shows this year. Yeah. Well, we're actually out till like December 19th okay. or something. Yeah. Is there anything next year? No. Uh, Basically, when December comes around, uh, Thursday is going to sort of like, like the primary members of Thursday are basically going to have to have a conversation about, okay, what the hell are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I'm going to have to figure out um, next chapter, sort of like how, yeah, like, you know, I've told those guys like as long as you know I can continue to keep doing it, I love playing with them and touring with them is great. Um, you know, we've had, it's interesting, like, because people often ask about this sort of like, what is the state of Thursday? You know, like, yeah. cause there's like guys in the band that are still in the band. Tom and Tim are still in the band. Yeah. 
we're me and Stu right now are touring. Yeah. Um, and we sort of joke about it as like almost like a the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Thursday, (laughs) (laughs) like where it's just sort of like we have all these like talented people around us, and you know, let's just sort of just be. Like, why do we have yeah. to have so many rules about like just having fun? Just playing, man. yeah. Like, no let, stress. Just let it be, and uh, and I think that we're at a time right now where like everybody's rethinking what does it mean to be in a band? What does it mean to make a record? Yeah. What it, does anybody want a record? Does what you know like true. at the drive-in put out one? People were like, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like it, it's sort of like maybe. People just want singles at this point. Who knows? You know, so it's like, it's an interesting time because I do think that somewhere in the next few years, we're going to see a variety of different ways of being in terms of what it means to be a band. Yeah. And I think that that's partially because so many bands now are even like either, you know, people are, again, we're talking back to the same sort of topics. Like you're aging now, you have kids, maybe you can't tour or you're, um, or maybe you just, you, you now live in different places, like H2O, you all live in different places, right? Like, so it's like, you've got to sort of figure out like, are we going to keep this going? And if so, how, what does it look like? Yeah. You know, you can do that now because the internet easy way more than you could do before. So we're still not fully there, but I think that we're going to find that there are going to be a lot of different models for what a band is. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially coming out of this two years of not playing shows, and it's crazy around there's so many shows, there's so many things happening at once, and I think they're all kind of affecting each other different ways. Yeah. I hear, I hear a lot about that in Europe right now. There's like five different tours right now, and in Europe, you could see, kids will go out to a show like every night of the week and see every band, but now... Things have changed in the world, man. Yeah. Different things going on. So um, when, when the anti-matter is going to be anniversary next year. Yeah. Next year is 30 years from the first issue. We had something exciting coming. Which is fucking crazy. 30 dude. years. Bro, it's crazy. <laughs> 30 years is crazy, man. Oh, my it's God. A long time, man. I just realized it like six months ago and was just like, that's fucking. I mean, I don't even know. Like, I shouldn't be around doing this, talking about this 30 years later. But here but we you are. are. And that, yeah. that means it. Had an impact, man. It's yeah. beautiful, man. So people, I mean, basically, so for the last bunch of years, people have been asking about, because uh, the book, the original book came out in 2007, and yeah. then um, that's been out of print for a while now, and people have been asking about a second edition. There will be a second edition next year, which is uh, going to be very different from the first. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still sort of like formulating what that looks like, but... I want to focus more. The first edition was very much about be doing something that was reader friendly. I wanted to do something that you could put in your backpack and read on the subway and like more like a, you know, like a book, like a novel or something. But like this version is going to be a lot more visual. It's going to speak a lot more to where we are in 2022 as opposed to 2007, which we're in now like this hyper visual culture. And you know, in 2007, the most we had was MySpace. Yeah. And, you know, now it's just like we're in fucking, you know. It's crazy, man. HTML5 and fucking, you know, like <laughs> whatever the fuck. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, it's a completely different thing. So the book is going to reflect that. It's going to be a lot more visual. It's going to be a bigger format. And I wanted to specifically to focus on the fanzine itself and on the story of the fanzine, which is something that I think is important to me it's it's a second story to tell yeah because i think that 
you know, sort of like what I was saying about like how I think I used antimatter in a, in a way to prime people for what I wanted to do musically. Texas, yeah, like different types of music. This, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I also though think that it played a role in sort of like being this fulcrum between the early nineties, which was obviously still sort of the early nineties I would define as like everybody from the eighties trying to figure out what the fuck they were doing yeah, <laughs> yeah what right? they're gonna do next yeah, yeah. the mid 90s felt like a crystallization people mm-hmm. started figuring it out yeah and 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 what we got as a result was like a variety of different fucking sounds and different totally, like right. scenes and like things were great and then the late 90s was really like the beginning of sort of internet culture yeah and sort of how that was gonna just like now it was going to put a light on everything that happened before it in a way where all these scenes could be rediscovered and people who didn't have access to these scenes, even in 1995, now we're talking about it on message boards. Yeah. We're trading MP3s and it basically led the way for what happened in the early two thousands when all these bands started breaking like in the mainstream. Yeah. Because they had access. Mm -hmm. So antimatter was sort of, you know, plop in the middle. It was 1993 to 1996 and it was, you know, I, I believe it was that connective tissue that sort of like connect because there weren't a lot of people that were connecting or could connect, let's say the eighties to the mid nineties at that point. A lot of people from the eighties had just dropped out They did, and people who were doing fanzines were mostly kids of the nineties. So I feel like, you know, I had this very unique place where I could do a fanzine where one issue had cause for alarm, shudder to think, and snapcase. Yeah. And great. and then like how can you do that and make it feel like you're telling one cohesive story? That's to me what antimatter was. It was basically saying we're all the same. Yeah. I love that. And and to tie it in with the podcast, that's why I love about the podcast that me and you me and you hung met before, we've talked before, we never really hung out. This is the most we ever hung out. And I love the pod because we are all connected through music and Texas reason may sound nothing like H2O or anything, but we're of the same mind in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's awesome. And now we're like grown ass sort of adults in our forties and fifties. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about it. It's, it's had such an impact on people, man. Like you said, antimatter probably helped, helped a lot of kids and opened their minds to a lot of things. And that's awesome. That's what I love of this music, how it's kept us all connected. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like international community. I did write the bio for Hazen Street, though. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you did, right? Holy shit. Out the air. Really? That's right. That's fucking funny shit. Who, who hired you for that? Uh, Epic? Girly action. Good Charlotte? DC flag? Girly action. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. You wrote Hazen Street's bio. That is like, that's a sick one on here. That's a sick I gem. was I was really psyched it's when you guys gem. were playing again. <laughs> oh, thank you, man. That was really fun to make. It was super fun to make that record. It was, I don't know, I love those songs. It's a great record. Thank you, man. Wow, you wrote that bio. That's crazy. Thank you. I'm going to go back and look at it, actually. That's sick. That was actually, and it was, that is an interesting bio to write because it was after uh, Freddie got out. Mm-hmm. And my first interview ever, the first interview I ever did with anyone was with Roger after he got out. Wow. So it was really like. That's crazy. Yeah. Like that felt like, oh, I feel like inclined to write this. That <laughs> like, is so cool, man. Yeah. I forgot about that. I got to read that pile. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for being here, man. Thank you for everything you put out into the world. And 
I know you're still fighting with like stuff in your past and like demons and life things, but on a positive note, I feel like you should know that your music and everything you put out there help people, you know what I mean? In a positive way. Even if it doesn't that. help you personally, you helped a lot of people too, you know what I mean? I mean, it has helped personally. I yeah, think I'm it's sure. one it's one it's of the reasons. Though. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I'm not as fucked up as I should be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean hardcore and all that. I mean, everything in your all your writings and songs, all that stuff, that's I feel like it's total therapy, man. Yeah. I just started going to a therapist. I'm really proud of myself. So it's a big deal for me at 52. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, That was a big, I I mean, not to fucking derail the closing real quick, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, like, you know, there was a thing in antimatter where, uh, you know, I was interviewing Richie Birkenhead best. And I said to him, I was like, what have you been up to today? Like, that was like the first question. And he was like, well, he's like, I just got back from therapy. Wow. Back then. And this was 94. And I was like, he was the first person who ever said that to me shout out to richie man yeah he's the best man he posted this picture the day on edge day and i wrote something to him and he's like he brought something back to me it was really nice old picture of him xed up like it was so cool um but i love i loved underdog man what an incredible band into yeah. another dude but that was a, that was a huge part is like yeah, him yes, out of let's... all people mentioned yeah right because richie used to be like fucking badass yeah <laughs> he was a gnarly dude like the pyramid club and all those clubs yeah, yeah. like he was someone to be feared yeah and uh and even like i mean i loved getting to know him because i was like this dude is actually fucking sweet as fuck so sweet dude <laughs> he's so sweet man I, I i saw him not too long ago and he's i'm happy for him man he's yeah. living his life and but normalizing therapy yes you're doing it fucking that's sweet yeah i'm it. really i'm really excited about it it's a, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a journey for me my I, my wife and son are totally proud because we've talked about it a million times nobody in my family's ever gotten therapy and me and my brothers, you know, my dad died at a very young age. There was no closure. We didn't go to the funeral. There's all kinds of resentment with my mom. I'm sorry, my mom, if you're listening. But we talked about these things. Yeah. Uh, but I'm really happy to have somebody to speak to that's not. Just like a stranger, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for the journey. I'm kind of scared. Like, what if they, like, find something that I blocked out that I wish I never knew and shit like that? They will. They will? <laughs> they will? And then all of a sudden, I know this thing that I wish I never knew in the rest of my life. Well, you know what's funny is that it's not that they're going to draw it out necessarily. Sometimes that happens. That's happened to me once where I was just like, it was a weird thing where I had this uh, therapist who was a gay therapist. It was my first gay therapist. And it felt like everything I said to him, he would bring it back to being gay. And wow. And I stopped going to him partially because I was like, this doesn't all have to do with being gay. You know, like I was like kind of mad. And many years later I was like, Oh, you know what it is? It's like, I was compartmentalized. I was still compartmentalizing being gay. Mm. And I did not have the wisdom to understand that you can't compartmentalize something that is so part of every part of your being. Yeah. When you were a child in the closet, you were policing how you moved your hands. You were policing how you spoke. Your mannerisms, yeah. You were policing what you wore. Anything that could give you away, anything that was a tell. You were so fucking trapped into every detail of your fucking life. Yeah. And now you're going to compartmentalize it? No. Yeah. It's a part of every part of you. Yeah. <laughs> and that realization fucking opened up so many things for me. So gay therapist <laughs> you were right i apologize <laughs> still going to therapy right i haven't in a while i took i took some time off okay. but uh um the last therapist i had um i really like but it's really difficult because i feel like you know the thing about therapists 
or therapy in general is that you really do need to, it's a stranger. Yes, but there needs to be some level of, of compatibility totally, and for it to really work. Yeah. And, um, and so my last guy, I really, I did feel a level of compatibility, but it also felt like I was sort of spinning the wheels a little bit too much. Mm. But I think what you're going to find is that it's not so much what they tell you. It's whether or not you have the wherewithal to actually sit there speak truthfully and listen to yourself. Yeah. And when you listen to yourself, sometimes it's what's it's sometimes it's hard, but it's also sometimes it's like you realize like, Oh shit. Like I just actually said something that I thought was this big deal. But in my mind, I'm like now hearing me say it out loud. I'm like, Oh, you're being fucking stupid as shit. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that's fucking petty or like whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Just saying things out loud. A lot of times has the power to make you reassess how you feel about something. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm excited for the journey. I'm going to keep you posted on it. Definitely. Well, thank you for being here, man. Thank you. This was awesome. Man. <laughs> I, really, I really like, I like when I just have one combo and I feel like I, I don't know, I just learned so much about a person. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, yeah. I appreciate it. Still to hang out with you in real life someday. Again. <laughs> It'll happen. <laughs> right, thanks, everybody. Bye. Check, check. Norman, hi. We're back on the pod, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the pod is out today. Uh, a couple of days from now, it's your birthday. So uh, happy early birthday, Norman. Um, and we jump back on this pod because since we recorded this podcast, we talked about antimatter originally uh, on this episode. But now it's back. What's well, coming back? So explain. Let's talk about it. Right. So when we talked about it on, on, on the first uh, conversation, it was in a state of unknown. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I sort of had a hunch that I'd be doing something for, you know, a second edition of the book or something like that, because this is the 30 year anniversary of the zine. Wow. And I, I just felt like, okay, that's fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> but the more I started thinking about it over the year and I sort of went back and forth with a lot of things, the more I started realizing that maybe like the thing that the problem for me was that I'm really into doing things that feel like a present concern. Yeah. And so I was, I was having difficulty sort of mustering up the attention and sort of passion to work on something that I felt like, you know, was a part of my legacy, but was basically in the past. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about where we are right now in hardcore in 2023. And I started to have these like feelings of like, actually, this is really weird, but like, Hardcore in 2023 feels a lot like hardcore in 1993. It's like it's, it's incredible right now, man. Uh, it's really wild. Like there's a right lot now. of there's a lot of sort of like exciting new styles and yes. sort of like there's a lot of you know mixed bills are happening again yes. and you know there's just and there's that brush with commercial success that everybody's sort of like got their you know <laughs> yeah. looking at and going oh god is that good or bad and that was yeah. sort of the same thing in 1993. You know you was sick of it all signing to a major. Oh my Good God, point. what the fuck? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, a lot of these things sort of started to feel like, you know, it wasn't history repeating itself, but it was rhyming and mm. it was feeling like a sense of, okay, when I started antimatter in 1993, one of my sort of objectives was that I felt like the scene had grown into something really cool, really interesting and really diverse. Yeah. And I didn't feel like there was a place where people could go and just 
have like an, a, a conversation about who they were, mm. right? That yeah. was really what antimatter was. It wasn't really like, I didn't ask questions about music even. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just kind of wanted to know, who are you? What's your deal? Yeah. And, uh, and, and for whatever reason, those types of conversations, I started to feel like the people decided that they were necessary because they responded to them. Yeah. And, and that was amazing. And so again, thinking about 2023, I mean, we've got like great podcasts like yours, but in terms of like print or online print for that matter, I just wasn't seeing the types of conversations that like I wanted to have with people. Yeah. And it felt like maybe there was space for this. Maybe there was a time to revisit this. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I was nervous about it. I wasn't sure about it. And then I did my first interview back with Crystal from Initiate. Nice. And I, I remember like getting out of the interview and being like, this is going to work <laughs> <laughs> because it was an amazing conversation. Mm -hmm. We really went deep and, you know, she really shared a lot of, of sort of like things that I could tell that were difficult for her to share, but it was sort of like, this was the point, you know, I was really pressing her about like, well, this isn't really about other people. This is about you, yeah. about you. Center yeah. yourself in this conversation. And I think people aren't used to centering themselves like that. Mm -hmm. And so you wind up getting some really interesting insights and, and stories and and realizations like in the middle of interviews where people are just like, oh, my God, fuck, I didn't realize that. You know, <laughs> I, I feel the exact same way with this podcast, man. Like it's very therapeutic. People just more open uh, people are talking about therapy, people are talking about mental health, people that are our age are talking about it or starting to tell more stories. Like I know you're going to be talking to Mike Judge. I had him on my podcast like three times yep. and every time it's a different story. It's a different part of his life that he, he ends up being comfortable to talk about. And I feel like even back then, hardcore is very like, you know, people had this like kind of hard kind of armor on them especially in new york with everything was just like can't show emotion got to be tough got to have this like, like this tough guy pose just all these different versions of hardcore that w weren't really like showing their i don't know their true selves and i feel like the generation yeah. now that you're talking about man there's so much diversity in all these bands that are playing now um it's incredible man like i, I can't explain like going to see verbal salt uh, with Gel and going to see Zulu two weeks ago, sell out a record store on a Wednesday night, playing like a 17-minute right. headlining set. The crowd was crazy. <laughs> and like just having these kids on my podcast and this where they're at with hardcore and where what they think about, uh, you know, the history of it and where we, and, our, and the time we had. And I don't know, it's a beautiful time, and especially because I live in California. I know it's the same with New York because I'm seeing footage mm -hmm. of how crazy it is there, but I just feel like it's just thriving. This band Speeds from Melbourne, Australia, they're like one yeah. of the biggest hardcore bands right now. Like Sound and Fury is this massive festival coming up in a couple weeks out here. It's just like ev everywhere. It's just it's just beautiful to watch, especially as – I mean, it, it definitely person. feels like hardcore is bigger than it's ever been. It does, like, man. The scale is just – insane at this point <laughs> i know and, and there's like and there's like sky's the limit i feel like there's so many bands that like obviously we got turnstile who i love but i feel like this they have like there's a bunch of bands not not like they're the umbrella of it but they're the ones right i don't know they're kind of setting the thing like yo you well, can they were, the, they were the breakout right yeah you know, you, yeah you, you can show your your pop sensibility you can show you like other music you can have 
different styles. Kid, these kids are wearing like cranberry shirts and Sunday shirts, all the right. stuff that I fucking <laughs> love that you love that like in the hardcore scene back then, like, oh, you can't listen to that type of music. It's only hardcore. Right. Know? But it's like, I love that they don't give a fuck about showing, like I had Zulu on, one of their favorite bands, one of Dez's favorite bands is Fall Out Boy. We talked like 20 minutes about Fall Out Boy. It's right. so cool. And then the Braxton loves Van Halen. He has a Van Halen tattoo. And these kids are in a hardcore <laughs> band. I, th- I fucking love that. I mean, I love the open-mindedness of it. I love that. They're, they're like, fuck it. This is what we like. Even like Scott. Well, that's like, the I sort of it, that's man. the sort of beauty of this stuff because I feel like, you know, having this thirty-year window looking yeah. between you know starting antimatter and sort of where I'm at now, and looking at sort of the evolution and just realizing that when you have thirty years of a scene yes. in in transit, like there are going to be kids who like literally like yeah, nobody knows who the fucking abused are or something you know what i mean yeah <laughs> like, but like they know who fallout boy was that was their gateway drug. yeah they know, and that's cool I know. and that's fucking great and 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 also like i think you know antimatter was certainly it was sort of a zine that i felt like needed to happen because at the time like i don't know if you recall but it was like I think I mentioned actually in the original pod where I was talking about maximum rock and roll and that weird gatekeeping thing that they yes. were doing where they, they decided we're going to decide what fucking is punk. Right. Yep. And, and I always was like, that's fucking bullshit. Same. And even like you look at, you know, fallout boy, it's like, I'm sorry. Those guys were hardcore kids. Yes. Like there was not <laughs> like, this isn't like, Oh no, they marginally listened to green day. Like, no, they were in fucking vegan straight edge bands. <laughs> and, and, like... and Hurley's still vegan straight edge. He still right. is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. we, I'm not going to be the gatekeeper who takes that away from them. Right. Like, it's like, no, they just fucking followed their muse and did what, was interesting to them and to me that's fucking hardcore yeah and I'm it's sure, not their fault that it's fucking massive <laughs> yeah and i'm sure like when we when we started coming around and the, the bands that we liked or the bands that we were in the band you were in the band that i was in you know it was it was too melodic it wasn't hard enough it wasn't you know we came sure. we came from that world but the 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 gatekeepers and the old heads before us i remember thinking oh h2o is not hardcore they're too melodic or this band's not that they're, right you're like there's always going to be people that think that, there's no blueprint to this shit it's like that's what I love right. about hardcore, how how it evolves and evolves different generations and the different versions of it. Um, and it's beautiful to watch, it, especially at 53 years old, still in the band for 30 years. You know, we don't tour as much, but like, I don't know. I just, I love just seeing it. I'm just proud of it and see it where, where it's, how far it's come. And uh, for sure. It's so cool, and it's an man. absolute privilege. You know, totally. I think like, you know, the last couple of years of playing with Thursday have, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't sort of like, it's not lost on us. Like every yeah. night we're literally like so psyched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You know, every night we're just like, I can't believe we still do this. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I, I see it. I see you guys playing too. It's and I awesome. think part of it is, is that, that feeling of like, you know, there was no, I mean, this was something else that I'm sort of like exploring a little bit, I think with Mike judge actually um, later today, you know, I'm saying how, this the sense of who we are now, like sort of, you know, as arguable adults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's fascinating because there was no role uh, like roadmap for this when we were yeah. younger. You know, when we were 23, if someone was 27, it was like, whew, they've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. And and so what does it mean now for this new generation of bands who are like, 
oh, well, you know, there are bands with people in their 40s and 50s. They're still fucking doing this. What does this mean about their imagination of the future and the possibilities of what hardcore can give them? Like for us, it was sort of like, at best live fast die young yeah (laughs) right like i mean honestly i was shocked when i turned 21 shocked when i turned (laughs) 25 shocked when i turned 30 like i was just no 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 i'm supposed to die (laughs) i don't know what the future is but i but at this point now it's like oh the future is whatever the fuck i want it to be that's fucking hardcore and so that's that's sort of like where I'm at. And I think I feel like that's really the vibe that I want to bring to antimatter. And I really want to keep it, you know, it's it's a new I guess the other part of it is that it's a new sort of platform uh for what I want to do. Um yeah. it's not a fanzine. Okay. So it's it's going to be uh available at antimatter.substack.com. Oh, that's awesome. It is um yeah, and and essentially what I'd like to see happen. I mean, the only way that it can really happen is if it remains sort of a reader supported publication, which I think online people have like weird ideas of what that means. But to me, it's basically saying, I'm going to basically give you a fanzine every month. Mm -hmm. If you were at a show, you wouldn't think twice about giving me five bucks for it. Yeah. So maybe we can figure out this model together where I can just keep it open for everyone and readers support it because they support or value the work. And I think, you know, that's something that in punk, we've been sort of like taught to, I feel like almost undermine our value. Right. And, you know, I don't know where it comes from necessarily. Like the other day I was talking about how, like, I was like, where did this $5 show thing really come from? Like why five bucks? Mm. (laughs) Like I get Fugazi did that, yeah, but it, it felt like they were the only ones who really could. Um, and I felt like all the promoters were losing their shirts every time they booked a Fugazi show. (laughs) So it was like, okay, like, is that really like what we want? Like there has to be a way to create a balance. I wonder why the bands didn't try to do that. Or I'm sure they tried to do that. I think other bands did try to do that. And, and uh, to be honest, Texas is the reason tried to do that. (laughs) I mean, not like in a way where we were as maybe vocal about it, Yeah. but there was a period of time early on where we were really trying to get promoters to do that. And they were just like, no, you don't understand. Like overheads and all that shit. Yeah. That doesn't even pay X, Y, and Z. (laughs) And we were just like, okay, well, fuck. Yeah. I wonder how it even worked. I mean, I wonder. It's, yeah, it's, I just I don't know. It's it's I, cool. It, I don't know that it did work. Is the thing? Yeah, <laughs> it worked for them. It's just cool that it, it it became like something that they did, just because right. it was such an incredible band, you know. Like, but then it, it was bizarre because it sort of like it it put other bands in a position of like feeling like shit if their show was seven dollars, right? Mm. And it's like, okay, well, fuck, uh, like, yeah. what you know? At the end of the day. All, all sort of like quote unquote punk business is really about, I think, two things. One is supporting each other, supporting the scene that we're in and yeah. sort of being a part of that community. And I think that there's strength in sort of keeping, you know, your your economics inside of your own community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's something about that that I think is very strong and yeah. powerful. Um, and I would say that about any number of communities. But, you know, the other thing I think is, is this, this sense of the value of work, which is something I've really been thinking about over the years, because, you know, I've done a lot of things and yet, and I've had a good life, like yep. no complaints. I, Same. my life has been super rich. 
I've been not financially, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Health and Super happiness, rich. man. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I've been, you know, I've been fine. I've never gone without. Right. Same. Um, and at the same time, you know, there is this sense of, of like, I, I'm, you know, reaching halfway to a hundred <laughs> as yeah. I call it. Yeah, um, you know, I don't own a house. I don't own a car. I don't have any assets. Like I have basically what's in my bank account right now and the books on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. And so, th- you know, there is a sense of what's, what are my assets? Meaning like, what are the things that are really valuable? And I started to realize like the things that are valuable, are the things that I've made, the things that I've put yeah. out into the world yeah. and, and, and sort of like these creations. And I think that I feel value in them and I feel like other people do as well. For sure. And so returning to antimatter, I see this, you know, as my assets, like this is my life. This is what I'm worth. Mm -hmm. I, I, I give, or I try to connect with people. I try to connect people with each other. I try to, you know, make conversations that make people feel, you know, safe and, and and able to be who they are and and that's sort of what i I think that's a gift and i'm you know i want to go back to it basically yeah you you were doing that 30 (laughs) years ago when it really wasn't cool to talk about your feelings or talk about people being uh comfortable in their own skin or you know you did that way back then you gave them a platform and a place to feel safe back then and now i feel like with podcasts with everything with 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 the bands that we talked about diversity what, what the bands were singing about talking about um i feel like now more than ever people um they need that and and they appreciate that you know a, yeah. a, a, a safe place to come and just talk and i don't know it, uh, yeah i yeah. think I, I i see I, I see it as a great great thing and why not it is 30 year anniversary and you're still part of the scene you still love it you're still supporting it it's yeah. not. It's not like you're it, coming back to do it to capitalize on something that you said you, you grew out of twenty years ago. This has been your life, right? <laughs> you know what I mean. This right. has been your life. You live this life. Like, I mean, it's like I mean, for for better and worse. It's it's totally. sort of this is what I come back to. <laughs> I always say hardcore ruined and saved my life. I always say that. But, <laughs> but it's yeah. like, well, yeah, like I get that completely. And and but I do always go back to it's like hardcore saved my life multiple times. Yep. Like whenever I was directionless and didn't know where I was going, something hardcore related brought me back in, into sort of like a place yeah. of knowing and a place of being and a place of belonging. 100%. And, and it, whether it was just a hardcore person that did that or a hardcore project or music or yeah. whatever it was, it was like, I can't front on that. Like, yeah. I can't. Like, there were certainly parts of my life, I'm sure, where I was like, Oh my God, fucking hardcore. Oh, what did I do? <laughs> Same. But, you know, yeah. I keep coming back for a reason. It's not because I'm a masochist, I swear. Yeah. You know, you know what I think also this it's not anymore with this generation is how, how judgmental hardcore was for a second. How something that was supposed to be about, you know, inclusive and open-mindedness. And we talked about this originally right. in the first conversation. Now I feel like it's actually really, really about that life. It's like really about that. Like everybody's even fucking between, welcome everything. Even between the conversation that we had and now. Yeah. Totally. It feels like so much has fucking changed because like I was saying the other day, like I was like, I feel like I'm hardcore Martin Luther King. And one day I was like, I had a dream. And now <laughs> it's like, I'm looking out and it's like, holy shit. I All know. the bands have like women I know. Or, or genderqueer or non-binary yes. or people of color or like, yes. and I'm just like, holy, like every major band right now. <laughs> I know. 
has some level of diversity and it's, it feels like everyone just sort of like popped out at the same time, like this fully realized scene. <laughs> I, know, I know. And like, have you, have you ever heard of flat spot records? Yeah. 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 That's Ricky, Ricky from uh backtrack from Long Island and his partner. I, yep. forgot, I forgot his name. They're fucking crushing it, man. They're crushing. Yeah. It. It's beautiful. And then Rob Vitalo, who the singer from backtrack, he manages knock loose and turnstile and he's a hardcore kid. It's, it's incredible. Man. Right. It's incredible. Right. I love that. So it's, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I, you know, you can't predict these things, things just happen. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to having conversations with a lot of these younger bands yes. to understand sort of that experience. Because for me, uh, you know, as I told you before, like I had such a different experience mm-hmm. and <laughs> for sure. And, uh, and I want to know now, like, what's it like for a hardcore kid coming up now and seeing this? And this is the norm. Mm-hmm. This is what they're going to internalize as what hardcore sounds and looks like. It's like, it's, and, like, it's like people finally actually listen to the lyrics to walk together, rock together. Actually listen to the right. lyrics that these bands <laughs> were singing about back then when people were fighting during these songs or like not listening to lyrics. Like even like uh Civ talks, whatever it's soundtrack for violence. Like, like yeah. now it just seems like people actually like, yo, this is what it's really about. Community, unity, all that. And it's like just seeing that and going to these shows out here and like, ah, oh, man, it's like, it's ama- it's amazing. I don't know, man. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I don't know. And I think like the other, the other aspect of this that I really want to sort of like point out or, or at least mention is the fact that I do think that there's this one other element of hardcore that, can only have happened now, which is the truly intergenerational moment, Mm. right? Like the fact that we can now have connective tissue. It's almost like we can have hardcore ancestors at this point. Mm. It's been around for so long (laughs) that it's like when you're talking about somebody who's hanging out in 1979, that's like an ancestor, <laughs> right? I mean, we got Vinny, I mean, like, Vinny Stigman. It's like mid '60s, still playing live, right? Killing right. It. And I mean, like, like I was when I was talking to Crystal uh, from Initiate, and she said, "You know, I'm 30 years old." And I, wow. the first thing I thought was, "Wow, you're as old as my fanzine." <laughs> <laughs> and my band, my band's gonna be 30 years next next year. Wow, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, and that's fucking amazing. And so, obviously, yeah. someone who's coming in from that vantage point is going to have so much to share that with other generations, with my generation, right? Yeah. With our generation, like I want to learn from them as much as I hope they want to learn from us. Like, yeah. I feel like this is, that's goes back to sort of like a very hardcore thing to me, which was like that sense of, again, I don't know if I mentioned this on your pod, but I feel like this is something I would have said. Uh, that sense of like, remember how it was in the scene where, people would really sort of like pay attention to how long you've quote unquote been around. Yes. How long right? you've been down for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Check and, your papers. And, yeah. There was exactly, <laughs> there was a sense of respect for our elders, right? Yes. Like I knew that I was like, you know, all right, this dude was an A7. I'm not stepping to him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. He knows something that I don't, but yeah. now over time, you know, we can all learn from each other. Yeah. We can respect what happened before. We can respect the people who fucking pioneered this for us. You know, yeah. it's, it's, that should be there too. But this element of sort of intergenerational learning, that's something that I really want to get into. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, I mean, dude, I love, I love all this shit, man. I, I love, I love it, every, the way it's going, just everything about it, man. I, I, when I, I, went, I, went, I went, I went to go see, I went to go see Ended. I love this band, Ended. 
and I got I, love I, I was talking to the singer Akil, and he's so freaking awesome. And he's and it's a new generation of hardcore, and they're fucking awesome too. They're so fun. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't know. And I love that, like, you know, even Thursday, like, we're going out on tour in September, and it's like, you know, there's going to be bills that are like us with Jell and Koyo and Vinnie Caruana. Like, wow. not a single band in that lineup sounds like any of the other bands. <laughs> and, I, and I love that, too, because that's a shit, for the past 20 years, you only get that at a European festival. None of these diverse yep. packages were happening in America at all. At all, man. And, 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 that's, and, and I feel like this is the moment where a bill like that happens, makes sense, and is cherished by the kids. Yeah. And I think like that's what I'm really looking for. Like I always think nostalgically to like, you know, like the second Texas is the Reason show, you know, was with Mouthpiece, Ignite, Snapcase, and Donuts. Wow. It's like nobody treated us any different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we clearly didn't we weren't metalcore we weren't hardcore we were yeah there wasn't really an emo core like that was describing us yet <laughs> yeah it was just sort of we were what we were and everybody was just like yeah you're in the scene cool <laughs> yeah i love that i'm, I'm excited so, i'm excited for riot fest because i saw the same day we play obviously the cure plays that night but that's later later but oh the... so we're we're playing on the same day though. oh yeah cool with gb snapcase earth yep. crisis wow <laughs> you guys that's so cool wow this that's a crazy so, lineup man yeah it's i mean it's there's a it's it's really i feel like this is the time for a lot of uh or for for a situation where we can really now look back and sort of like live inside of hardcore in the present and mm. be proud of it really because yeah. i feel like you know just the fact that it's existed this long um, first of all, it's fucking insane. It's totally insane. Um, <laughs> I certainly did not really ever think when I first started going to shows that this is where I would be so many years later. Yeah. But it's, it is. And it's like, it's a spirit, it's it. a spirit inside of us that we both, that we have that a lot of people have that like keeps us young, keeps us, I don't know, man. It's, it's really special. Yeah. And I've, I actually, it's funny you say keeps us young too, because I always keep thinking about how like there's this weird cognitive dissonance with older people in the scene now <laughs> because everybody's just hanging out with everybody yeah. and nobody's, you know, there used to be a time. I always remember like, you know, there were like a couple people in the scene that were like clearly older than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> and the younger kids would go to the shows and be like, who's the old guy. You know? <laughs> and he's only a couple years and, older too. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? It probably yeah. was like 40 or something, maybe 30. <laughs> I mean, even like leaving it like, Talk about skaters, like even like getting to meet and hang with Christian Sawyer or Cab and like knowing them from the magazines, right. thinking they're way older than us, but they're really not. At least for me, they're no. not really that much older than me. But in the, in the magazines back then, you think that they're like way older. I don't well, know. Well, one of the things that, you know, and it's funny. So the Mike Judge interview will, will be the first proper awesome. interview back. Yeah. And that'll be, um, that'll be next week. Awesome. And um, when we do regular publication. But you know, one of the things that I'm talking about with Mike is this part in the in our original interview. So I'm, yeah. I'm using my original interview with him as sort of a uh, jump off point. Oh, that's cool. And and one of the things that we talk about, I say, uh, "How old are you?" And he <laughs> says, "I'm 27." And I, I go, and this is this is me talking. I say, "Wow, that's a long time to be doing this kind of thing." Wow. He's like, "Yeah, man," <laughs> and he's talking to me. Like a retired, I called it like a retired coal miner. 
<laughs> and so, you know, part of it is definitely going back and being like, let's go back to 27 years old for a second. What the fuck were we thinking? Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. You're going to have it as like, the, yeah, that's the blueprint almost like from back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to be able to have, I mean, that's the other, so the, cool. the other sort of advantage of, of having a zine that's, that sort of existed in the public consciousness this long is yeah. that I can go back to these conversations and have them again and say, okay, like Mike, it's been 29 years. Where are you now? Let's fucking, <laughs> let's, let's dig in. <laughs> yeah. And they're still playing right? shows. It's crazy, man. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, I, I mean, this, this is really like for me launching antimatter again, I'm really psyched. It's a complete like celebration of something, not just the zine, which I love because the zine is such a, it was such a huge part of who I am. I think, yeah. you know, it was, it was the way that I was able to tell you who I was uh -huh. basically. Yeah. But it, it's also just sort of a celebration of the fact that, you know, if antimatter had like one guiding principle, it was that hardcore was more than music. Hardcore was not just a style of, of chords and beats, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a community. It was an ethos. It's a way of being. Yeah, And I want people, especially like as, as hardcore is growing now and lots of new people are showing up, I really want them to, to also sort of like imbibe that. Cause I think that that's what keeps it alive. That's what keeps it going. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it's perfect. And the fact that we're talking about it, uh, you, you're talking to me on my podcast, you're about to bring antimatter back. You're still playing music. You, you're right. It's, it's more than music. It's way beyond yeah. music, man. It it's has like, to be. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so special, and it's no matter how big or small it got, or popular, or you know if it got on the radio or not, it's still something really special. It still feels really underground. It still feels really like a special place. I don't know. It absolutely is, yeah. and and it it's always going to be because of our experiences and our relationships, totally. and that's and that's really what what the interviews that I do are about. Mm -hmm. It's what makes you hardcore, in my opinion. Yeah, and you know i i just think that that's evergreen that's never gonna yeah that's never gonna change for me yeah oh fuck man this is great this is almost just as good as the first first part <laughs> <laughs> um oh did we talk about you got the you, did you um i don't know if we talked about last part but you're the you're the only guest i ever had uh norman came to my house straight from maturity took a uh, shower my straight edge shower it's pretty sick <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty sick. Um, well, I'll see. I'm gonna. Say, I'll see you at Riot Fest in September. Um, yeah. Are you gonna? Are you, are you in town September 8th for the Grilla Biscuits H2O show in Brooklyn? With end it. End uh, playing no. too. Okay. You're no, going. we're okay. on tour for that. Well, you're gonna be. Well, you you're, you don't live in fucking Orange or whatever. When you're out here. Mind. When you're out here again. Uh, we're we're playing that is for Lovers Festival on August 26th. Um, All right. I'm gonna check it out. I'm back August 13th from Europe. So. Just remind me. I mean, me. if you're around, let yeah, me know. Yeah, yeah. Orange is not far. We'll, what we'll venue is it? Uh, Observatory. Um, uh, no, it's like it's like a it's like a fest. Type oh, okay. Thing. So it's it's some venue I've never heard of before. All right, cool. Who's on the fest? Who else is on it? Um, I think Thrice Alkaline Trio. Oh wow. Um, okay. yeah, yeah. It's gonna be good. Bayside. Okay, that's cool. Okay, cool. Us. I think that's the top four. All right. Awesome. Um, well, we, so this episode's out now. Your birthday's in a couple of days. Happy early birthday. Antimatter episode will be coming out this week too, correct? Yes. Okay, so awesome. we're doing two, this week is a couple of introductory posts and then regular publishing next week. Awesome. I'm, I'm psyched. I'm psyched it's back. 
Me too, man. Thank cool. you for having me, by the way. Of I'm course. And give my love to Mike Judge, too. And um, yeah, I'm excited for people. I hope people enjoyed this episode. And uh, I'm glad we reconnected. And uh, I'll see you soon. All right. Have a good one. All right, Norm. Bye. Bye. I always ask my guests if they have any regrets. I personally don't have any regrets. Even when it comes to my tattoos. I have the silliest tattoos. Even my ET on my leg. It's still a childhood memory for me. And I love it. I've had tattoos on top of tattoos strictly because I wanted more tattoos. I started getting tattoos when I was 18. I'm 52 now and I can't stop. I've had laser treatment before on something on my arm. It's four tattoos on top of each other. And that experience at that place was pretty fast. It was pretty cold. It was in and out. Swiped the credit card. Don't really tell me much. Didn't give me much details or anything was going to happen. So I never went back. So as of most recently... I'm so lucky enough to have had two sessions at Removery Tattoo Removal. My tattoo on my arm looks like a big black blob is now super light. I've had two sessions. I have a long road ahead of me. None of this stuff happens overnight. You cannot take a tattoo up in one sitting. You have to be patient. And it's painful. They ice you up. It's super fast. To me, it felt like a bunch of rubber bands. But what's more painful than that is looking at something on your body that you think you're stuck with for the rest of your life. That sucks. But now for me, I'm really happy I started this journey. I'm slowly going to get this tattoo removed. I never thought in a million years I have any kind of real estate on my arm. I don't even know what I want, but it's exciting. I'm so honored to announce that One Life, One Chance podcast is now with Removery. I have a code. Use TobyH20 and get $100 off your first session. Call 866-934-4570 or go to Removery.com. One of the most experienced tattoo removal companies in the world. Over 600,000 removal treatments done. 100 locations, U.S., Canada, and Australia, state-of-the-art peak-away laser technology, cryotechnology to reduce any discomfort. This is so exciting for me because all I do in these podcasts is talk about tattoos. From day one, if you've been listening to this podcast, we talk about tattoos, talk about getting removed, talk about getting covered up. So this is such a perfect fit for me. Once again, go to removery.com or call 866-934-4570. Use my code, TobyH20, and get $100 off. These guys are located everywhere. Try it out.